When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Chances are, if you have listened to this show or me on the radio in any of my other incarnations for any length of time, you are aware of what my favorite musical is. Whether we're talking a theatrical production or a motion picture, my favorite musical of all time is 1776. I love everything about 1776. I've seen it on Broadway. I've seen the film more times than I can count. I, no exaggeration, I have every word in the film, and which is pretty similar to the play, Committed to memory, every lyric of every song committed to memory. One of the great thrills that I've ever had was being able to interview William Daniels, who plays John Adams in that in that show. And if you're not familiar with 1776, it's just great. The music is brilliant. The history is remarkably accurate, which is more. I mean, it's not perfectly accurate, but it's remarkably accurate. And it's fun. It's funny. And it's great, great music, great drama, great history. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I think it's a great way to teach young people about the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the founding of our country. It's great. And a couple of months ago, I talked about this on the air at the time. I saw the news that they were bringing back 1776. And then I see, oh, wait a minute. Okay. And I was all excited. I said, oh, okay, they're bringing it back with an all-female cast. And my enthusiasm did diminish a bit because my view is the show was perfect as it is. And then I would see advertisements walking all around town. Last Friday when I did my lengthy trek from uh, Midtown, Midtown West to the Upper East Side, I saw the advertisement a few times. I said, you know what? So what? So what if it's all-female? It's a different show. Maybe I'll check it out anyway. Maybe that's what artistry is all about. I know during the uh, the Great Depression, and they were they had things like um, productions that were funded, different artists. I remember they did an all black version of I think it was Macbeth or it might have been Hamlet. And okay, fine, I'll still see it. So yesterday, I see that this show starting next month. By the way, the revival of 1776, the all female version. So yesterday I see that they have two-for-one tickets on sale. And I, I don't go to a lot of Broadway, maybe at most one show a year. I said, all right, let me buy some tickets while it's still two-for-one. Lo and behold, this is far worse than just an all-female version of the cast. They're doing this musical revival, and... <laughs> I almost bought tickets to this, and I'm glad that I didn't, and I'm not going to go see this now. 
It's a cast comprised fully of performers who identify as female, non-binary, and trans. And what's worse is they're actually going to be changing some of the lyrics to the songs to make them more inclusive. I have such a problem with this. Now, 1776 is the original Hamilton. You know how people were all excited about Alexander Hamilton. So I wouldn't have an issue if they took some liberties, as Hamilton did, by making all people of color. But they're slamming... They're slamming the original version of this play, and this play was great. The fact that they're changing lyrics is just awful. And uh, as part of the advertisement promoting this, they said that they were doing this because the American Revolution was fought uh, in part on the backs of women. Well, one, the original theatrical production and the film, which is very similar to the theatrical production, it recognizes the incredible role that at least two women played in the Revolutionary War. You had uh, Abigail Adams, who is a very strong female character in the play. And you had Martha Jefferson, who's a very strong female character in the play. So it's not as if they pretended women were barefoot and pregnant or in the kitchen, totally absent from helping. Uh, Abigail Adams was integral, if you see the play. And I really think it totally undermines one of the most dramatic aspects of 1776, the, the show. So there's this one scene, if you haven't seen it, there, the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson, ha, it denounces slavery. And it calls for an end to slavery. By the way, that written by Thomas Jefferson, who all we hear now about Jefferson is what a monster he was, right? And there was a huge fight in the show and in real life about whether that provision should be included in the Declaration of Independence. And it was the southern colonies, soon to be southern states, that obviously didn't want that in there because slavery was very big in the southern colonies and then later in the southern states. And that is some of the biggest drama in the show, the fight over slavery. And to me... The fact that it was propertied white men, both in history and in the show, that were the biggest advocates for doing away with slavery, that to me makes it even more impressive. Jefferson, Ben Franklin, John Adams, uh, certainly in Jefferson's case, the fact that he had slaves is even more impressive that these guys who benefited from the status quo the way it is, especially Jefferson, they were saying to all the world as part of the Declaration of Independence, hey, we're white guys, we're property owners, we're benefiting from the system the way it is, but the system sucks and we want to change it. That's remarkably impressive. And I think to redo this show with all non-binary trans uh, people a colorblind version, which we know what that means. That means, you know, just minorities and folks that identify as female. I think it becomes a tremendous distraction from the beauty of this show itself. And I think that uh, to change these lyrics is something that I can't forgive. So I've decided that I'm not going to see this. Fortunately, I listened to the soundtrack. 
and the original cast recording to 1776 quite often. Uh, we play some of the songs on this on this show quite often, and uh, I can I can think of no better time, no better way to remember the original contribution of the original cast than by going back and looking at some of the terrific scenes in that show. You know, it's quite bizarre to think that here we are playing midwives to an egg. Egg? What egg? America, the birth of a new nation. Only we can be sure of what kind of a bird it's going to be. Thomas, the point. What sort of bird shall we choose as the symbol of our new America? The eagle. The dove. The turkey. The eagle. The dove. The eagle. The eagle. The turkey. The eagle is a majestic bird. The eagle is a scavenger, a thief, and a coward. A symbol of over ten centuries of European mischief. A turkey. The turkey is a truly noble bird. Native American, source of sustenance of our original settlers. An incredibly brave fellow who will not flinch at attacking a regiment of Englishmen, single-handedly. Therefore, the national bird of America is going to be... The Eagle. The Eagle. So uh, that was one of the funnier moments in the show. Not exactly perfect history, but it was uh, but it was good. You know, it was good. Well done. It was well executed by the cast. So uh, no disrespect to any of the new cast, but I won't be seeing this. And I'm really quite frustrated that this is what Broadway thinks they have to do to sell tickets and to get buzz and to make substantial contributions to the artistic theatrical world these days. I don't know how you feel about it. That's my two cents. 800-848-9222. I'd love to hear from you. That's 800-848-9222. I just, I don't know why you would take something that was great, something that was beautiful, and ruin it. And ruin it. So, um, again, uh, maybe if you're uh, a minority or non-binary or transgender or someone who identifies as a female, maybe you feel differently. And I'd love to hear from you. If that's the case, and I will absolutely listen with uh, an open mind. 800-848-9222. But uh, to change the lyrics, that's where that's where I just draw the line. So I'm not going to buy tickets to this. If something happens where somebody invites me to see the show and I can go for free, maybe I will go see it just out of curiosity. But I don't know how I would countenance watching these great numbers that I've always so enjoyed and then seeing the lyrics change. That's that's where it just made me cringe. So love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. Also, where, what you think this says about the Broadway and theater these days. Um, by the way, I'm all for shows that celebrate women and shows that celebrate female contributions to history and shows that celebrate minority contributions to history. My My wife and I, for her birthday, we went to see the show Six, which is all about the six wives of Henry VIII. And a lot of the a lot of the people that were in that show, a lot of the people that were in that show happen to be minority, and I think that's great. Uh, the difference with that show is the wives of King Henry VIII really were female. And number two, they weren't taking an existing show and trashing it. And I hate to put it so bluntly if you're in the cast, but that's what I view you're doing here. So uh, 800 Let me tell you what's coming up. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to talk with Raphael Mangual, 
Rafael Mangal, Mangual is uh, with the Manhattan Institute. He is a, a brilliant young man, somebody that has been praised by everybody from Bill Barr, the former attorney general, to Bill Bratton, the former police commissioner of the city of New York. I've interviewed him many, many times, and he's got this new book out called Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. So we're going to get into that with him in a little bit. Then in the uh, our third hour, we're going to go live to Atlantic City and talk with Michael Traeger, a man that knows more about gambling and the business of gambling than every than anybody. So we'll get into uh, these latest numbers that we're seeing out of Atlantic City, the comparison between Atlantic City and New Jersey, a bunch of other things. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy. And then in our fourth hour, we will do our weekly check-in with uh, Brian Kilmeade, nationally syndicated radio talk show host and uh, the uh, co-anchor of Fox and Friends, a guy that is probably the busiest guy in media. I was just in the kitchen getting some coffee. I see that he filled in for Greg Gutfeld last night. So he just basically got off the air, and he's going to join me in a few hours. Really, I don't know where this guy gets the energy. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Susan is in Washington Heights. Hello, Susan. Yeah, good morning, Frank. It's Suzanne, by the way, actually. Suzanne. Um, yeah, that's okay. Um, I just wanted to call uh, right on top of the what you're saying about the updated version of 1776. I think it's interesting. Um, I, I totally agree with your point of view on this. But I was reading the other day um, that there's a church in Texas that recently was prosecuted, and now they have to pay a lot of money. They did a production of Hamilton where they did – they also changed – the lyrics and the slant of the show. Um, and I don't know what the difference is. I don't know whether it was because, you know, Hamilton is still a current production or Lin-Manuel Miranda is is alive. Um, but I'm presuming that the uh, the original composer and lyricist of 1776 had to sign off in some way on this updating. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, obviously, whoever owns the rights the theatrical rights to 1776, they they did grant permission for the this new revival of 1776, which is the big difference with um, with what happened with that uh, McAllen, that church in McAllen, Texas. But um, yeah, no, I think you're I, th- I think that's a, a fair point. And uh, I, so I guess you're right. I don't know who owns the rights or how that really works. That's uh, that's an aspect of Broadway that I'm totally unfamiliar with. But uh, but it is interesting. That's for sure. Yeah, no, but, but I, I, you know, I agree with your point of view. I know when Stephen Sondheim was still alive, he signed off on this recent production of Company, where it was totally switched, where the main character Bobby was was now a woman instead of a man, and uh, a lot of the, some of the other relationships were changed. Um, I'm I'm not um, in general. I I don't like changing the original version and intents of the show, especially when they go against the creator's intent. But uh, I guess there is a point where if the creator says it's okay, they can they can at least try this stuff. Yeah. Well, I don't know if um, if Sherman Edwards, who uh, wrote the original uh, the music to the original show, no, he's not still alive. So he's been dead for forty years. And I don't know if Peter Stone, who um, you know, who wrote the original, uh, you know, some of the other original uh, aspects of it. I don't know if he's still alive, but. Um, in my view, the, the thing that I find so offensive about it is that it takes away some of what was so impressive about what the founding fathers did. I have, and, and you know, thank you for the call, Suzanne. I have no problem with different interpretations of things. I saw a, um, I saw a production of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing 
that took place in the 1930s, right? I thought it was great. I thought it was really creative. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was fun. Uh, The uh, Shakespeare version of Romeo and Juliet, which takes place, the film with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, which takes place in 1990s uh, California. I thought that was really interesting. I have no problem with tweaking. I have no problem with twists. I have no problem with different interpretations. What I have a problem with is ripping out the soul of a beautiful piece of artistry, which is what I think has been done here with with this non-binary, identify as female, colorblind, trans version of 1776. I'm sorry if that sounds closed-minded, but um, I just make a new show, right? Make a new show that uh, that's a musical that uh, deals with transgender folks and celebrates transgender contributions to history or something along those lines. Why do you have to take this show and 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 ruin it? I, I just I don't like it. That's my two cents. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Rafael Mangual joins us next. Uh, we'll try and get to your calls as well throughout the hour. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. That's far more tough. Here at home and overseas, ignorance is the real disease. Idiots walk among us. They're lazy, lazy, lazy. Idiots talk among us. Their speech is often hazy. Idiots talk among us. Never ceases to amaze me. Idiots talk among us. Tries to be crazy, crazy, crazy. This is a, a new song uh, called Idiots. I think it's just called Idiots. It is by the venerable pop musical ensemble Gun Hill Road. And the vocals that you hear there are uh, that of Michael Harrison, who is the publisher of Talkers Magazine. He's a friend of mine and a great guy. And uh, this is brand new. And there's a new video uh, that you can see that has to do with this song. It's called um, it, you can see it at idiotsvideo.com, and it's sort of a commentary on how weird society is today. Uh, so check it out. Uh, check out the video. The video is quite good at idiotsvideo.com. It's nonpartisan, and it takes shots at everybody. And as you can hear, it's also incredibly catchy. Hey, uh, it is always a treat to be able to talk with Rafael Mangual. Uh, if you want to know... What the former Attorney General Bill Barr, what the former New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton, what Megyn Kelly, uh, what Dennis Prager, and what my wife Rachel have in common. It's that they all absolutely love 
Rafael Mangual. He is uh, with the Manhattan Institute. He's a senior fellow and the head of research for the Manhattan Institute's Policing and Public Safety Initiative. He's a contributing editor to City Journal. And he's, he's the author of the new book, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Also, uh, a pretty young guy to be this accomplished and uh, to be this celebrated by so many intellects. Raphael, thanks for staying up late with us. It's great to talk to you again. Oh, so great to be back on the show. Thanks so much for having me back. All right, so let's begin with uh, the premise of your book here. Uh, what has decarceration and depolicing led to, and who does it hurt the most? So I, I think what it's led to is a situation in which the downside risks associated with those endeavors have come to pass, which is to say that it has led to a systematic lowering of the transaction costs of committing crime as well as the systematic raising of the transaction costs of enforcing the law. And those two things in combination have created the circumstances, I think, for a good part of the crime spike that we have been living through for the last two-plus years. Now, we tend to talk about crime in sort of national terms, in citywide terms, in statewide terms. It's an understandable colloquialism um, you know, to hear about America's crime problem or New York City's crime problem. But the reality is, is that Crime is a very hyper-concentrated phenomenon, and so the way that we understand who that problem hurts most, uh, I think, begins and ends with an understanding of that reality of crime concentration. So if you take just New York City, for example, and you dig into the data, what you find is that less than 4% of our street segments, the street segments being defined as corner-to-corner both sidewalks, account for 50% of all violent crime in the city. 95%, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims every single year in this city are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them male. So these are problems, uh, violent crime is a problem really that affects very discrete parts of any given jurisdiction and affects a very small subset of a given jurisdiction's population. And what I wanted to do with this book was kind of highlight that a lot of the really bad ideas that have informed this push for decarceration, this push for de- uh, policing, which, by the way, have been promulgated in the name of racial equity, in the name of low-income minority communities, individuals who've been uh, disadvantaged in various ways, are actually creating problems that are disproportionately hurting those very people that reformers say they're trying to help. Mm. Now, historically, even though that we've seen a little bit of an uptick in the last couple of years in a city like New York, which is you spend a lot of time analyzing uh, the data in New York, among other cities. But New York, because of the large police force and the large population, it really is so uh, it's so emblematic of the situation in a lot of other urban areas around the country. And because New York has implemented some of the policies that you decry in the in the book. Historically, even though crime is going up in a city like New York, in the grand scheme of things, if we look at New York over the last 40 years or so, isn't crime still relatively low in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, you know, the question is, is to what degree should that um, make us okay with the direction that we're heading right next? I don't think that the answer is a very high degree at all. I mean, for one thing, for a, a good portion of our population, that life is as dangerous in New York as it's ever been in their lifetimes, right? If, if you were, you know, born after 1996, 
um, this is going to be, you know, the most dangerous things have been in your entire memory. And so that matters. Um, you know, but it's also true that New York has, has changed in a lot of ways. We wouldn't expect it to be as bad as it was in the 1990s. You know, our city, thankfully, was able to fortify itself in really important ways that made a lot more communities within the city less vulnerable to the kinds of crime increases that characterized daily life in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s in New York. And so our capacity for a crime problem is different than it was in the 1990s, which means that the fact that we're still significantly lower in terms of homicides or you know, whatever crime mm. measure you want to use doesn't necessarily uh, spell success on our part. Um, which is to say that, you know, I think the thing that should really guide us is an answer to the question of how bad are things, not in relation to, uh, you know, how bad they've been historically, but as bad as they can possibly get mm. given the situation on the ground. Now, uh, one of the things that I like about your work, not only in this book, but a lot of your other work, is it's very data driven. It's very difficult to argue with because it's primarily all based on numbers. So straighten us out in terms of the facts. I know New York made a big deal and the politicians in New York made a big deal in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident that they had cut essentially a billion dollars from the NYPD budget. Now, there are some politicians in New York these days. uh, I heard one speech recently by uh, city council member, Republican David Michael Carr, who said that they, the Common Sense Caucus working with Mayor Adams, has restored that billion dollars that was cut. Is that accurate? Has the, has the movement that led to the defunding of a billion dollars, uh, has that led to a, has that led to a re- replenishment of the billion dollar cut? Yeah, as far as I understand uh, the situation with New York City's budget, it's that, yeah, that there has been a backfilling process. Now, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that the defund initiative um, didn't do harm, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, for one thing, there was an entire academy class uh, that was canceled. And, you know, those are officers that didn't join the force, you know, for at least another um, six months to a year, if not longer, depending on you know, sort of what assumptions you make about what the size of the academy class would have been. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, but, but, but that, that to me is also, I think, a distraction from mm. some of New York City's deeper problems. Because, and I wrote this in the New York Post a few months ago, um, but the idea that we can sort of dig our way out of this hole simply by refunding police is misguided in the following sense. That lever to, to pull a billion dollars out of the NYPD's budget was not the only lever pulled um, in the last few years in recent history that has an impact on our public safety. We have seen a number of reform initiatives from bail reform to discovery reform to less is more, raise the age and, you know, the right to know act and, you know, the, the, the stop and frisk litigation and, you know, the corporate monitorship of the NYPD, et cetera. I mean, this this litany of things that affect what we can expect from the efforts of police. And so, you know, when you read these stories about, you know, really heinous crimes committed by somebody who's got 15, 20, 35, 50 prior arrests, what that tells you is that the NYPD is doing a pretty good job of identifying the sort of people who pose Mm. the biggest problems, but that the rest of the system isn't playing its role in keeping those individuals off the street. And so, you know, we have really reduced the capacity of the criminal justice system to back the efforts 
that are typically understood to fall within the realm of policing in a way that makes those efforts less impactful. In your book, you talk about how the very groups that activists claim to be helping uh, low-income minorities, and you just mentioned this again just now, with these police reforms are really the ones who end up getting hurt the most because they live in high-crime areas. Do regular people in high-crime areas want these police reforms? Do they want to uh, end stop, question, and frisk, for instance? Do they want to cut police funding, cut the size of the police force? If not... Why do they vote for people that support that? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I think you, you, depending on which sort of policy initiative you're talking about, you get a, a pretty wide range of responses on a survey like that. Um, but generally speaking, there is basically no support, even in low-income minority communities, for the more extreme kinds of uh, measures that are very popular among police and criminal justice reformers. I think Gallup did a poll uh, a little over a year ago now uh, that found that 81% of black Americans wanted as much, if not more, policing than they were currently getting. There was a, a box and morning consult poll done uh, in 2016 uh, assessing the public response to various questions about uh, incarceration and found very, very little support across racial groups for decarceration efforts that would put people back on the street who had been convicted of violent crimes or who had a high risk of reoffending if released. Um, and so, you know, th- there is not as much support in terms of why they continue to vote uh, for people and parties that, you know, we know have uh, a sort of more sympathy for the kind of more radical reforms that we've seen. I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I have the right answer to that. I suspect that it has something to do with other policy areas that really drive their decision to mm-hmm. vote. Um, but also, you know, uh, I, I suspect that there is probably, a, you know, a low turnout problem. Manhattan Institute just released a really fantastic paper by a colleague of mine, John Ketchum, that illustrates the degree to which voting is, you know, pretty suppressed, even in New York City, um, which claims to have uh, you know, uh, a sort of vibrant democracy. But, you know, we have off-year elections, um, you know, multiple times a year. So there, there are a lot of reasons why hardworking people who, you know, have just enough on their plates in terms of getting to and from work and taking mm-hmm. care of their families maybe don't participate in particularly high rates. And, you know, some of the more important elections that are often very low salient elections, right? I mean, most regular people don't know very much about you know the platform of the prosecutor running for office. And I think part of that is just the lag effect of the fact that we used to take for granted up until very recently that someone running for the office of prosecutor was serious about, you know, addressing crime. Um, you know, that's still kind of a new development that I think a lot of people need to catch up with. And um, as well as just the broader reform movement, it's really accelerated in a very mm. short period of time. I mean, even just in, in the wake of, of what what happened to George Floyd in 2020, the New York Times did an analysis in 2021 that found that in the year after George Floyd's murder, more than 30 states had passed something like 140 different criminal justice reform bills. Um, so, you know, the, I, I do think it's it's just going to take some time for for you know. People 
people to sort of make those connections yeah. between policy and, and the impact on the ground. Yeah, I, I've maintained that a, a big problem uh, is uh, with policing reform and criminal justice reform is political reform, because if people if we're if we're seeing a situation where the only election that matters is the Democratic primary and there's not everybody participates in that contest, then you see you do see the most extremist element get elected and implement extremist policy. I think if we had nonpartisan elections, you'd see a a different situation. But well, that's a, a separate discussion. You mentioned that crime is is concentrated. How concentrated is crime? What are we what are we talking about here? And and can we simply just increase police presence in the areas where violent crime is? Yeah, I mean, well, I think that's something that, you know, police departments across the country have already been doing. I mean, one of the you know, biggest advents of the, the 1990s was the incorporation of big data into um, policing and specifically with respect to you know, decisions about the deployment of police resources. And, you know, so, so I do think that's largely being done, but just to kind of give listeners an idea of the scope of crime concentration in America, I mean, I, I gave the stat, you know, uh, for New York City, you know, about three and a half percent of street segmentsy, about 50 percent of all violent crime. You know, that, that sort of pattern holds in cities across the world, not just uh, the country, but, you know, in, in the United States, uh, in a given year, about 2% of U.S. counties are going to see about 50% of U.S. murders. And about 60% of U.S. counties are not going to see any murder Oof. in a given year. And so, you know, the safest places in the – most of the United States is, is basically as safe as the safest places in the world. Um, if you were to sort of be randomly dropped over the United States by parachute, um, you know, 10,000 times, you know, 9,900 times you're going to, you know, land uh, in a place with a murder rate of zero. But, um, you know, an unlucky few will land in places that rival some of the most dangerous, uh, you know, urban enclaves in the world. I mean, you know, one example that I give in the book is West Garfield Park, Chicago, which in 2019 had a murder rate in excess of 130 per 100,000. Wow. And just to sort of put that in perspective, in 2019, the national murder rate was five per 100,000. And 28 other Chicago uh, neighborhoods, um, you know, which I aggregated in this analysis, uh, had a, a collective murder rate of less than two per 100,000. And so, you know, just to give you an idea of how your safety picture can change, even within the same city, you can go from a, you know, a neighborhood in the city of Chicago where the murder rate's one per 100,000 and then, you know, drive a few minutes and be in a place where the murder rate is 100 plus times that. Um, so it's a very hyper-concentrated problem geographically, but it's also a very hyper-concentrated problem demographically. And, you know, when we talk about homicide victimization in 2020, the black male homicide rate was 10 times the white rate. Um, you know, that, 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 that's a really important statistic to, to sort of understand and absorb before you start talking about other problems, because it has implications for so many of our other criminal justice debates. I mean, one of the things that's really informed a lot of the, the, the sort of reform push for decarceration and depolicing initiatives is the you know, reality that there are racial disparities in criminal justice enforcement statistics. But if you understand how concentrated crime mm-hmm. is, both geographically and demographically, and understand that police will logically and morally make the decision to disproportionately deploy their resources to the areas with the biggest crime problems, 
then that explains a good chunk of the disparities that follow with respect to enforcement efforts that are going to happen in those places, right? If you have police spending the bulk of their time in the places with the biggest crime problems and you have certain demographic groups that are overrepresented in those places, then it logically follows um, that if police make those decisions, they're going to have disproportionate interactions with people of those backgrounds. And so we, we can't just take a top-line disparity and, you know, uh, accept that as prima facie evidence sure. of, you know, racial bias. Uh, and that, that's a huge part of it. Uh, talking with uh, the author of the book Criminal Injustice, Rafael Mengual, the conventional wisdom on the subject of crime has always sort of been that crime is caused by poverty. You challenge that a little bit. Is crime caused by poverty? And if it's not caused by poverty, what is it caused by? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that there is an association between crime and poverty, but, you know, in terms of an immediate cause, it does not seem to be uh, anywhere near the top of the list. Um, uh, Certainly not when we're talking about prioritizing responses to crime, right? The idea that we can spend our way out of a violent crime problem uh, is, I think, at complete odds with, you know, what the data is saying. You know, a few uh, data points to consider here is, Uh, Again, just focusing on New York City, in 1989, our uh, city's poverty rate was actually slightly lower than it was in 2016. Now, why am I picking those two years? I'm picking those two years because 1989 was the year before New York City peaked in terms of its number of murders, Mm. 2,262 in 1990. And in 2016 was the year before we hit our valley number of murders, which is 292 in 2017. So we were able to cut homicides by you know, 90%, uh, and poverty actually moved slightly wow. in the wrong direction, if not you know, essentially remained unchanged. You can look at you know, other measures of socioeconomic uh, indicators like um, you know, unemployment, right? So you get the Great Recession happens. Unemployment rate in the country nearly doubles between 2006 and 2010. The homicide rate declines 15%. Hmm. You can go back to the Great Depression. Crime declined in the United States uh, during the Great Depression. Homicides spiked in the in the 1920s, which was a period of economic boom. I mean, you know, so so the idea that uh, that poverty causes crime it, to the extent that poverty reduction programs, social spending programs, should be seen as effective crime-fighting tools is, I think, a misguided idea. I, I, when I was promoting the book and as soon as it launched, I did the, uh, the Trevor Noah show. The I, actually, show I saw Noah. that interview. I thought that was a, a great interview on both of your parts. I thought he was very well prepared, and uh, for a comedy show especially, I thought it was the most substantive discussion and the most civil disagreement on the subject of policing and criminality in America that I've seen in recent memory. Yeah, yeah, no, it was really a fantastic experience, and you know he was uh, very, very uh, excited about the book, and and you know clearly had read it, and so I really enjoyed that exchange. At one point, though, during the exchange, we were talking about this very topic about the connection between poverty and crime and social spending and crime. I, I had you know sort of pointed out that education spending in the city of Chicago had you know increased significantly during a period in which homicides also increased. And he had an interesting response, which was that, well, yeah, you're only talking about a two-year period, though. And, you know, he gave this analogy of building out a soccer Mm. team 
uh, you know, he says, you know, if you want to build a championship team, you have to sort of start with your farm system, and that takes you know years to cultivate, and you have to draft and sign people and you know train them, and you know, uh, eventually you get to a point where where you're able to win a championship. And you know, I, I didn't get a chance to to say it on the show because we we ran out of time, but. You know, I understand the instinct to make that kind of argument, but the, I think the appropriate response is, you know, what are people supposed to do in the meantime? Right. Uh, right. You know, when they're dealing with, you know, gunshots outside of their homes. I mean, the idea that we should uh, just wait, you know, five years, 10 years, however long it takes in the hopes that we will solve one of society's most intractable problems that we have yet to figure out how to solve at scale, right? I mean, you know, poverty and dispossession has been, you know, a, a sort of part of human history, um, you know, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of societies. Um, the idea that we know how to solve it, uh, I, I think, is it doesn't have any real basis, and, and, and the idea that we can solve it reliably mm. um, in, in some short period of time is, is I think, you know, uh, equally questionable. And so, you know, what I what I think we need to pay more attention to are the things that we know can make crime less of a problem today, things that we know can start to turn the tide much more quickly. Um, unfortunately, though, the longer that we wait, the longer that we allow misguided policies to stay in place and crime problems to fester, the more time it's going to take to get things back under control. And, and the fundamental aspect of that based on your research, is more policing, particularly in neighborhoods where crime is concentrated, and keeping people in in prison who are committing violent crimes. That's exactly right. I mean, the incapacitation of these people um, is, is a really, really key point. Again, you know, policing is very, very important. It's the tip of the spear. But when these officers risk their lives to take really violent individuals off the street, there needs to be a system in place that can spare society of the crimes that they would otherwise commit if they were out in the general public. Mm. And that's where the major failure is in recent times, particularly here in New York City. You know, when, uh, when you have in the city of Chicago, for example, a situation in which the average person charged with a shooting or a homicide has 12 prior arrests, mm. when 20 percent of them have more than 20 prior arrests, when, you know, even historically before this reform movement really took hold, you know, more than a third of violent felons um, were either out on probation, parole, or pretrial release at the time of their crime. You know, these are these are statistics that illustrate what the downside risk is that's associated with the kind of decarceration that people say they want to see. Right? I mean, the the best way to evaluate the claim that the United States has a mass incarceration problem is to ask the following question: Can we safely decarcerate on mass, right? If we're unfavorably compared to a Western European democracy, be it, you know, the United Kingdom or, you know, Germany, uh, with respect to our incarceration rate, we have to just ask the question, can we safely get our incarceration rate to achieve parity with that nation? That would require us to release about 75% of the people incarcerated in the United States. Um, Can we safely do that? Well, let's look at what our recidivism data says. The people who are getting out of prison right now under current policy have a recidivism rate of about 80 percent, right? So so we're already dealing with a prison population of offenders that are extremely likely to reoffend if released. On average, over a 10-year period, those offenders are going to be arrested five times. 
Now, there are those that will say, though, uh, Raphael, that part of the problem there is the the prison system itself, where instead of learning any marketable skills, uh, people come out of prison marginalized, very, you know, almost unemployable and learn nothing in prison except how to be a better criminal. So, I mean, some people would use the recidivism statistic as a selling point to make prison more of a, a rehabilitation process than, an, than, a, than a punishment process, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think it's important to distinguish between the kind of punitive rationalization for incarceration and the incapacitation one. I mean, I'm not, you know, I've never been kind of a retributivist. I, you know, for me, the, the payoff of incarcerating a violent offender isn't, you know, the satisfaction of punishing that person for bad conduct. It's more so the fact that while they're inside the community that they would otherwise be spending their time and is spared the offenses that, it, that that individual would otherwise commit. And so those are, you know, that to me is the primary benefit associated with incarceration, not punishment. I do think that we should continue to invest in rehabilitation efforts. And I say in the book that there are many ways that we can consider making prisons less criminogenic. Uh, I don't think, however, that we have figured out how to rehabilitate reliably, let alone at scale, mm. across a prison population of 1.9 million people. And I think our recidivism data uh, you know, reflect that. The idea that, you know, it, it, it reflects the fact that people are coming out of prison unemployable assumes that they went into prison employable. And, and you know, that that I don't think is the case either, in part because the average person leaving prison today had 10 prior arrests and five prior convictions before they entered prison. Um, so, you know, uh, we're already dealing with individuals who have kind of, uh, you know, set their trajectory, um, you know, long before their most recent incarceration. There, there was one study of, of, of bail reform uh, um, that the cities were anonymized, so, so we don't actually know what the jurisdictions were. Um, but the, the study was looking at the effect of pretrial release. It found a big increase in, in crime committed by people who were released pretrial. But one of the things it looked at was the incomes of individuals who were entering jail um, and enter and entering the system. And it, it found that that people who were um, arrested and, and entering pretrial detention, I think, had somewhere in the range of five thousand uh, dollars to seven thousand dollars in annual earnings in the year prior to their incarceration. So, you know, when we're talking about incarcerated populations, we're not really talking about people who were uh, who, who were displaying some enormous amount of potential to, you know, sort of live mm. successful pro-social lives. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, you know, to what degree do we want to risk and gamble with the lives and safety of the individuals living in the communities that, that these offenders uh, are spending their time in, in order uh, to, to give them yet another chance at, you know, sort of playing by the rules and, and yeah, Raphael, I, I, I have to run, uh, but I have uh, literally pages worth of notes that I'd like to ask you about. Maybe we could uh, have a continuation of this conversation next week because uh, you've done some great work here. And it's uh, really raised a lot of uh, interesting questions in my own mind and I, I suspect in the listeners' mind. Maybe we could do this again in a week or two. That'd be awesome. All right. If you want to comment... On any portion of our conversation, uh, we're talking with Rafael Mengual. His book is Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. If you want to comment, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side. 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. like this aren't you glad the police at least the band never got defunded am i right um by the way sting who of course is an integral part of uh the police is also my wife and i are in the midst of watching the first season of only murders in the building and he i don't know if he's in more than two episodes or three episodes but he's in three episodes in a very very funny role i must say so if you're a sting fan you should uh, definitely check out that show, Only Murders in the Building. We're up to, I believe, episode six of the first season. We have not made it to the uh, second season yet. Now, uh, a couple quick things. One, um, Matt Blaze, are you hip to this whole uh, Kenneth haircut situation? What is the situation at hand? What was, I, I need to be hip about. Well, so obviously you noticed Kenneth got a haircut. Yes. Did you remark to him about it? Well, he came in and he was like, look at He was like, look at me. He was like showing it off. Well, did he say the words, look at me? Yeah. Really? He motioned like, hey, look. I'm like, how could I miss right. it? Right. And then what, what did you respond? I was like, oh, looks good. And then what did he say? He's like, oh, I had to get it done. And I'll let him tell wait, you why. Wait, wait, no, no. He told me. Oh. But, but I'm interested to see what he told you. What did he say about why he had to get it done? He was forced to get it done. Forced to get it done. Forced. By whom? By a modeling agency. Right. right. So Alex Barnard is here. So you had a whole haircut experience as well, I, I guess, right? With uh, with Kenneth. Did you hear about this? Oh, I was the first one who saw it. Okay. So yeah. and did you remark about the haircut? I. He saw it in my eyes. I was visibly surprised. <laughs> he came wait, in. Wait, wait, wait. So both of you, neither of you said anything about the haircut. He just volunteered the haircut information to you. Yeah, he came into the studio or into the control room that I was working in at the time and just stood there and kind of smiled. And I was like, whoa, like I, I literally did almost like a spit take. Right. And then what did he say? <laughs> he just kind of laughed and was like, you know, uh, yeah, I had to get a haircut uh, for. Well, I mean, volunteer the information yourself. Well, no, Kenny. But so that's interesting. So he did the same thing with me. I. I actually noticed the haircut. I said, oh, you know, you got a haircut. It looks good. And so Kenneth responded, and then we'll let Kenneth speak for himself, you know, after we've all spoken for him. Um, Kenneth responded by saying the same thing that I'm assuming he told the two of you. So clearly he's been on a whole tour of the second floor going all around, whether people are asking about this or not. And he said, yeah, I was forced to do it because of this modeling agency. They thought that I would look better with with the, a short haircut, I'm really not crazy about it, to be honest. And it was really one of the, I think it's the definition of a humble brag, meaning 
I'm so handsome and I'm such a great, you know, model and such a great looking guy, even though Sid Rosenberg told him in 38 years he won't be anymore. But um, I am forced to wear this burden of getting a haircut, even though I don't like the haircut. I'm a slave to the modeling agency that I want to that I want to work for. Not even there's more than that. It was this. It was. They told me that my hair is too long and it's taking away from my handsome <laughs> right, face. Right, oh, yeah, I got yeah, that yeah. too. Right. He, he probably yeah. told some of the sales guys that don't even know who he is <laughs> about about this, you now, know? Um, now, Kenneth, I mean, I think all of us at some point or another have gotten complimented on a haircut before or at least have people noticed that they've gotten a haircut. Usually the response is just, thanks. Not necessarily a ringing endorsement of how handsome they are, but I guess you are that handsome, so people should know, right? I I wasn't trying to brag about it. I was just trying to justify why I had the hair, because I hate the hair. Well, it looks great. It looks great, as you know, and I hate that it distracts from your handsomeness, but... Those of us that are this handsome, Kenneth, we all have our crosses to bear. Am I right? All right. uh, We'll get into some issues beyond how handsome. Hey, if you want to call in and speculate about how handsome you think Kenneth is, go ahead. 800-848-9222. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. One story I didn't get to yesterday, so I thought it might behoove us to focus on this today, is that uh, on Monday, Dr. Anthony Fauci announced that he will be stepping down in December. Uh, Fauci's plan to retire from government was initially reported in July, but the 81-year-old made it official this week. He currently serves as the chief medical advisor to the president. And the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and the chief of the Laboratory of Immunoregulation for the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He is stepping down from all three positions. Now, Fauci's departure comes at a time when COVID cases remain high and the Biden administration is trying to pivot to meet the public's changing sentiments on how to handle the virus. The CDC has now relaxed COVID guidelines while its director has called for reevaluating the organization after it failed to properly respond to COVID. Now, Fauci's retirement follows the resignation of another top White House pandemic official who left earlier this year, Jeffrey, I believe it's Jeffrey Zients. So, Biden, as you might imagine, put out a statement, very laudatory towards Fauci, said, as he leaves his position in the U.S. government, I know the American people and the entire world will continue to benefit from Fauci's expertise in whatever he does next. Whether you've met him personally or not, he's touched all Americans' lives with his work. Now, Fauci has served for nearly 40 years. And what I'd like to do is have an honest look 
and an honest evaluation of his legacy. And I'd like to invite you to comment on how you think his legacy has fared. The good, the bad, the in-between. What do you think his legacy is after 40 years of service? Fauci led the National Institute of uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases under seven different presidents over the course of nearly four decades. Before COVID, he was a highly regarded figure across the political spectrum, probably best known for his work on the HIV and AIDS crisis. During the pandemic, Fauci became a very divisive figure. Democrats praised him for what they viewed as realistic outlooks on the virus, uh, often undercutting a more rosy picture put out by the Trump White House. Republicans became deeply critical of him, saying he overstated the authority government agencies had to enforce mandates and social distancing, and he offered contradictory remarks on all sorts of things, including mask wearing. Over time, he was also criticized for not recognizing as many other epidemiologists didn't either, that asymptomatic people were the primary spreaders of this virus early on. In 2020, Fauci had to begin traveling with an armed security team after a series of death threats. Think about that. Uh, So the left, by and large, is praising Fauci's career, saying he leaves a strong legacy. Uh, Some are arguing that his advice on COVID was mostly on the mark, even if he got a few things wrong. Others say Fauci managed to very carefully navigate the politics of Washington, D.C., while trying to keep the focus on public health. In Market Watch, the writer Paul Brandis said that Fauci's advice was always on the mark. On CNBC, Don Capecchi celebrated Fauci's legacy. I'm not going to read everything she said. And CNN, Kent Sepkowitz wrote about what made Fauci a great leader. And he talks about how um, after more than 50 years in public service, I imagine Fauci was tired of all the current COVID noise and death threats, as well as the tedious discussions that characterize all bureaucratic jobs, much less the ludicrous accusations that he was cashing in on the pandemic and therefore sought to prolong it. Though Fit as a fiddle, he probably, as he admitted to the Washington Post, but I'm still reading from Kent Sepkowitz, um, is starting to feel his age. He's going to be 82 in December, but I doubt strongly he gave up because he was frightened or intimidated. After all, Fauci has spent decades in the public eye and has previously been the recipient of seemingly endless criticism, but nevertheless, he always persisted. Now, what the right is saying is the exact opposite. Uh, The right is critical of Fauci saying he misled the public and got a lot of things wrong. There are many calls for investigations into his time leading the COVID pandemic response, and others hope he simply fades away quietly. In The Federalist, a writer by the name of David Harsenyi said, perhaps no person in American history, think about that, and this is saying a lot, perhaps no person in American history has done more to harm trust in public health than Anthony Fauci. In the National Review, the editors said, quote, good riddance, good riddance. In the Washington Examiner, Tim Carney said he hopes Fauci will just fade away. 
Um, my take is somewhat in between. First of all, you know, I know Fauci is the best paid bureaucrat in the United States. He's the best paid government employee, the highest salaried government employee there is. That being said, uh, someone with Fauci's experience and expertise, he could have made millions more than he has in the private sector if he had gone into the private sector 20 or 30 years ago. So I'm somebody that believes in public service and gives credit to people who spend years in public service. I think it's an admirable thing, and I think um, I I give him some credit for that. He leaves behind a storied career with some remarkable achievements. He got a lot of things wrong during the pandemic, and I don't think we should forget about that. I have to remember, back in January of 2020, January 20th of 2020, he was talking to John Katsimatidis on John's nationally syndicated Sunday morning radio show, The Cats Roundtable, and this is what he said. When when John first asked him about COVID and people were first starting to get worried about COVID, this is what he said. The American people should not be worried or frightened by this. It's a very, very low risk to the United States. I mean, you talk about getting a pretty big public health question remarkably wrong. You can't forget about that. He got a lot of things wrong during the pandemic. And his job is to be right. Now, he's only human, but his job is to be. That's why you're there. That's why you're the chief medical advisor to the president and uh, the head of the National Institute of Allergic and, you know, whatever, you know, the thing. I'm not going to read the whole acronym. Uh, That's why you're in those positions, because it's your job to be right. And what what is most disturbing about Fauci is his public comments on several important issues have either been misleading or outright lies, which in my view, I think that irreparably harms his legacy. If you're a public official and you're caught repeatedly lying to the public, that is the the most important thing that you have, trust. And I think that demands some accountability. So let's start with the positive. By any objective measure, working until you're 81 years old and ending your career at the top of your profession, which he's done, is something that is to be admired. If you remove COVID from the picture, Fauci has had a positive impact on the U.S. and the planet. He was on the front lines of the public health responses to AIDS, anthrax, Zika, Ebola. And the research and treatments that he's led have benefited millions, not just in the United States, but abroad. And he did this under seven different presidential administrations with a wide variety of political views and parties and pressures and environments. And I also I I wouldn't want to be in his position. I don't envy the position that he was in being the public facing medical advisor to America. It's not an easy job. We are a rowdy country that loves to complain, loves to disobey what public officials tell us. It's in it's ingrained in who we are. That being said, um, we measure great figures by what they do in their biggest moments. And you can't remove covid from his legacy because that was his biggest moment. And he failed. His failures during the pandemic along with the relationship between his career and the potential origins of the virus, are going to be a huge part of his legacy, and I think they should be. I think uh, mask wearing is a big part of that. 
the conflicting messaging on that. You remember March of 2020, let us go back in time, when Fauci was on 60 Minutes, right as the pandemic was getting going, and said the following. There's a lot of confusion among people and misinformation surrounding face masks. Can you discuss that? The masks are important for someone who's infected to prevent them from infecting someone else. Now, when you see people and look at the films in China and South Korea, whatever, everybody's wearing a mask. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it? Because people are listening really closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. Now, then, a couple of months later, May of 2020, he was singing a very different tune. This is courtesy of CNN. I wear it for the reason that I believe it is effective. It is, it's not 100% effective. I mean, it's sort of respect for another person and have that other person respect you. You wear a mask, they wear a mask, you protect each other. I mean, I do it when I'm in the public for for the reasons that, A, I want to protect myself and protect others, and also because I want to make it be a symbol for people to see that that's the kind of thing you should be doing. And when I walk around the street in the neighborhood where I live in Washington, D.C., which still has a considerable number of infections, it's very clear that many people are doing that. March of 2021. Guy that didn't like that answer was Senator Rand Paul. And who can forget it? I think we played it at the time. Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci mixing it up on the issue of masking. Well, let me just state for the record that masks are not theater. Masks are protective. And we have immunity there, theater. If you already have immunity, you're wearing a mask to give comfort to others. You're not wearing a mask because of any sign. I, I totally disagree with you. Now, um. August of 2022, MSNBC, when he talks about flip-flopping on the issue of masking. With COVID, I mean, the things that we thought we knew in the beginning turned out as the months went by to not be the case, which really forced us to adapt and to change some of our policies and recommendations. That was interpreted by many as flip-flopping or not really knowing what's going on when it really was the evolution of the science. Now, we don't have the audio, but he said in other interviews, as have other public health officials, that part of the reason that they were giving that different messaging on masks at the beginning of the pandemic was not because they believed masks were ineffective, although he did seem to say that there. He said, you know, we learned more about it as we went. But he said they didn't want people hoarding masks and denying first responders to uh, having the opportunity to get them. Now, that's a pretty big thing to lie about. And you heard him in that 60 Minutes interview. He was adamant. He was absolutely adamant. So, But he also did say that he they underestimated the risk of asymptomatic spread. Um, so he was slow to realize that the virus was spreading among asymptomatic people. That fact helped unleash the worst of the pandemic in the first few months. He was wrong about remdesivir, which he predicted would be the standard of care, but is now uh, recommended against by the World Health Organization. He was wrong about this being a pandemic of the unvaccinated. 
He was wrong that people who were vaccinated can feel safe that they're not going to get infected. So the the scientific consensus did change. But as Fauci himself noted repeatedly, um, he is the one that we rely on to get this stuff right. He said he represents science. So in reflecting on the things that he got wrong, his view is that we should have had much, much more stringent restrictions. Now, I don't know how you listened to my interview with Anya Kamenetz yesterday and think that's the case. I think part of the the greatest tragedy of the pandemic are these lockdowns and what they've done in terms of drugs and crime and depression and anxiety and alcoholism and children. I don't know how you listened to my interview yesterday with Anya Kamenetz and think that the solution to COVID, if we could do it all over again, would be more stringent restrictions. And yet that's Fauci's legacy to me. Given the incredible toll that lockdowns and vaccine mandates had on children's health, on mental health, on addiction, on the economy, all for a gain which is at best uncertain in terms of containing the virus, I think that's a hard pill to swallow. And I can't understand why he was so quick to label the um, theory that COVID came from a lab in Wuhan, China, as a conspiracy theory, when now it seems to be a very credible theory as to what happened. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's the consensus, but a lot of people believe that's what happened. So why was he so quick to dismiss that? Who's being served by him dismissing that? And I think it's that's what has been damaged so much over the last two years. His reputation as a straight shooter. And he has nobody to blame, in my view, but himself. Um, He has been undermined repeatedly by his own comments. He admitted that he intentionally misled the American people about the levels of herd immunity that America would need in order to drop these pandemic restrictions. As the New York Times put it, quote, he had slowly but deliberately been moving the goalposts. He's doing so, he said, partly based on new science and partly on his gut feeling that the country is finally ready to hear what he really thinks, close quote. Now, that would have been a bigger deal had Fauci not had such a chummy relationship with reporters in the mainstream press who openly traded giving him sweetheart treatment with getting access to him. In front of Congress, as you heard in that Ron Paul cut, he was evasive and misleading about gain-of-function research in Wuhan, which he has supported and driven funding to. No getting around that. He has repeatedly denied that that research, gain of function, which makes viruses more transmissible and more pathogenic in order to study them, was happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I don't know how you view those statements as anything other than a lie. Um, So it's not just what Fauci did, but it's what he didn't do. He didn't spend any time or very little time reassuring parents that their kids were incredibly unlikely to get seriously ill, which should have been the first thing he was doing. He didn't push for schools to open sooner, and I'll again refer you to my interview 24 hours ago, 
when it became clear that doing so would be safe. He didn't combat these absurd restrictions on outdoor life, even though outdoor transmission almost never happened. He didn't treat people who had the virus similar to those who had been vaccinated, even though the science shows that you should. So I don't pretend to be a scientist or a doctor or an epidemiologist, but the sum total of the pandemic, which the response was led by Fauci, is a giant zero in my view. And again, I don't want to take anything away from an incredible career in public life, but as far as I'm concerned, Fauci's legacy because of COVID is a very negative one. And again, he seems like a nice guy, a guy I'd love to interview, a guy I'd love to spend time with and go out to dinner with. He's probably got some great stories and he's a New Yorker, which I certainly appreciate. In my view, his legacy is an, is is mixed, but it's negative. I think it's horrible that he gets death threats and has to walk around with armed security. There's no excuse for that. But I still don't think uh, that if they do a Mount Rushmore of federal bureaucrats anytime soon, that we should be putting Fauci's face up there. Fauci's Fauci. All right. Um, I've spoken enough. I will will take your calls on this in just a moment. What do you think Anthony Fauci's legacy is? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Wonderful. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, you can um, go join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. Uh, And if you ever miss this show, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast. Just search The Other Side of Midnight on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts. Please subscribe to it if you can. Leave us a nice comment. Leave a five-star review. That'll help other people. That'll help other people discover this show. And I do a totally separate podcast that of issues that we don't necessarily cover on this show. All about organized crime. Now, a lot of that has to do with Italian organized crime, La Cosa Nostra. But um, we are dropping an episode today. It's called the Racket Report, and you could search that wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. In about six hours, we are dropping an episode today 
focused on the life and times of Whitey Bulger. We talked a little bit about Whitey uh, earlier in the week when a couple of the people that killed him were finally charged four years after his murder in prison. But my guest this week on The Racket Report is Michelle McPhee, who is an Emmy-nominated investigative journalist, a brilliant writer. She used to be a brilliant radio talk show hostess. She's a screenwriter, brilliant woman. She was at Whitey Bulger's trial every single day. And we talked a little bit about what made Whitey so unique and who he was. So Whitey Bulger was a notorious kind of hoodlum. You know, he wasn't in the La Cosa Nostra. He wasn't, like, famous, like, the gangsters that we know the boldface names. What he was was a pretty good hood. And he made a name for himself because he kind of took over what is known as the Irish Mafia here, the Winter Hill Gang in Somerville. And during the war between different factions of this Winter Hill Gang, Whitey Bulger kind of came out on top. But... We now know, Frank, that there might have been a reason that Whitey Bulger seemed to win all the wars, and that's because he's been an FBI informant for decades. Amazing. Guy is one of the biggest criminals in the Northeast working with the FBI almost that entire time. And she had some other interesting theories there. And it was so much, and you'll hear it if you you subscribe to the podcast and listen to the interview. It was... She said so many interesting things, including a lot of theories that I've never heard before. She called me after we taped this interview. And meanwhile, I'm trying to get ready for this show. So the last thing I wanted was another phone conversation. But she called me after we taped this interview. She said, "Ah, did I go too far? People are going to think I'm anti-FBI. People are going to think I'm some crazy conspiracy theorist. Is that okay? Now, I reassured her that it was okay. But she went out there and she had reason to. And she made me a believer in a fascinating theory about Whitey Bulger's life on the lam. So that's the Racket Report. That's going to be posted later this morning. Uh, So just search the Racket Report on iTunes, subscribe, and uh, you'll get that immediately downloaded to your phone. Uh, All right. Talking about the legacy of Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is calling it a career after four decades in public service. I've said enough, so I'm going to let you guys comment as you see fit. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, uh, you got me fired up on a hundred different levels. One, uh, you talked about him as being like this great public servant. I know you've you've brought him back up and down, but uh, I think like police and fire, those are true public servants, not guys who walk with $300,000 pensions that we pay for. Um, So like like, even congressmen, oh, we serve the public, we're public servants. All right, enough about that. But um, I'm a pharmacist. When this first came out, I followed the NIH and the CDC guidelines about, like, talking points. I was telling people when they were starting to stock up on the mask, oh, no, no, it's going to make you feel comfortable. You're going to touch your face more. You might actually get it more. You know, it's, it's you know, you're wasting money. So, like, I followed the, the myth. And, you know, I deceived people, but not knowingly. I followed what I was told. So that was that made us feel, you know, mm-hmm. me, but others. Right. Feel like, you know, we look like morons. Right. And then. Right. I felt that way of being in the being on the radio and repeating the things that he was saying. Act in an immunity. Like I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a plain old pharmacist. But and I can't I don't know of any disease that you could get naturally where the immunity provided is not at least as good, but almost always better than an, an a vaccine, especially a new, you know, relatively new technology vaccine. 
Um, it, it's just one lie after another. His, his ego is just blows Trump, I think, away. Trump, Trump actually accomplished things. Uh, if you go back to the AIDS epidemic, he was a big advocate for uh, vaccines, which obviously that's the ultimate goal. But look what look what's keeping people alive now. It's not it's not the vaccine. It's I have a wall full of of HIV drugs that are keeping people alive, just like they have uh, just a regular manageable disease. So that was the route that should have been he should have been really pushing forward. But that was, he was going the the vaccine route. I mean, everything you said about him. Uh, he should not be he should not be under guard because that's just uh it's it's not right of people to do, to do that to anybody but uh no as a, as a as a human as a doctor i think he deep down will have a hard time resting in peace because he knows he deceived and he's probably implicated with the whole wuhan lab i mean it's just common sense i'm not a conspiracy theorist but if you follow some of the trails even if 50% of what you hear is right from conspiracy theorists that's still a lot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. And thanks for your great work as a pharmacist as well. What is Anthony Fauci's legacy? And by the way, just because I said some negative things about I tried to present a very balanced view. Uh, I went out of my way to read some commentary that was laudatory towards him and some commentary that was critical of him and give you my take. Uh, but I, I think in general, very few people are all good or all bad. Uh, I just think Fauci's handling of COVID was a disaster. And I think he's going to be remembered for that, even as, uh, you know, just to go back to 1776, one of the aspects of the play 1776 that is not totally historically accurate, it's also not totally historically inaccurate, is they make it out, and this was not really true, but they make it out that all of American independence came down to one guy. Judge James Wilson, delegate from Pennsylvania, in the show, not in real life. Whatever. We'll put real life aside, but in the show, Judge James Wilson. And he was trying to figure out whether to go with the people that wanted independence or whether to go with the people that wanted to kill independence. And it was his vote in the show that came down, that, that was the deciding vote. And John Adams says to him in the play, He says it would be a shame for a man who has handed down so many wise decisions from the bench to be remembered for the one unwise decision he made while sitting in Congress. Fauci was in the same position as Judge Wilson, and yet he will be remembered for his unwise handling of of COVID, in my view. Uh, And again, if you have a contrary view, please be heard. 800-848-9222. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Greg is in Arizona. Hello, Greg. Hey, hi, Frank. Uh, that was a great montage you put together. I forgot about half of that stuff that was going on. You had dates on it and everything. Well, thank the you. I got to give credit to um, Alex Barnard, our producer, and I think he had an assist from Kenneth who uh, who helped acquire some of that audio. Uh, they really uh, d- did the yeoman's work in a relatively short amount of time right before the show in accumulating that. So uh, th- they really deserve the credit on that. But thanks. Yeah, I didn't think you were putting it together on your way in uh, to the studio tonight. No, that was that was well researched, mm-hmm. and, and they did a lot of. T- time it really seemed like it was great the next time we're going to hear that stuff is when Fauci's in the hot seat in front of congress in about a year and a half we're going to hear all all that stuff all over again yeah i I agree i agree with you greg as we should i think there ought to be an accountability right i mean there ought to be a reckoning alfredo is in newark hello alfredo yes uh frank how are you uh i 
I totally disagree about uh, about Fauci. Uh, I think he did the best that he could. He he had a lot of experience, like a 40 years experience. It was nobody better than him to handle this situation. Uh, he didn't have an agenda because he worked for many presidents. Uh, he tried his best to you know don't to to avoid to you know for people dying because a lot of million people die, and uh, I don't think he he thought like uh, you know with his decision. You know, he will try to avoid. He will try to uh, kill more people. Wait, who would? Who, who would? Who would try to kill more people? I'm talking about Fauci. Okay, but um, now I respect your your view, Alfredo. Certainly, but what about just the issue of um, gain of function research? At this Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology, this lab in Wuhan, which we now know, we've seen the documents and the paperwork, we now know the United States did fund this gain-of-function research, and yet Fauci went before Congress and repeatedly denied that fact. He also gave no credibility to the theory, which I think is quite credible, that this virus came from a lab. Doesn't Don't those two things alone, doesn't that diminish his standing at least somewhat in your eyes? I cannot tell you anything about that. I just can tell you what he did right. And uh, he did, uh, again, his best. And uh, uh, he was the most qualified guy to handle this situation. Could you marry one person who just entered to have that kind of job, like one year experience? Do you think how he will, he or she could handle that situation? Uh. This big situation that was first time ever? Uh, Alfredo, that's a fine point, and there's a lot to be said for experience, and there's a lot to be said for credibility. But that's why I th- – and again, I, I said I was done giving my opinion, but this is the last thing I'll say. That's why I think what he did was so dangerous. By not insisting that they open schools sooner, a lot of families were hurt and a lot of children were hurt. And by not acknowledging how rare outdoor transmission was – we kept up this ridiculous charade of wearing masks in, in parks. I mean, it was just silly. And uh, by not acknowledging how unlikely it was that children would get seriously ill from this virus, I, I think it really hurt the whole country's recovery, not just economically, but uh, but morally and in every other respect. But whatever. I said I would, I would uh, not uh, comment further and give you guys an opportunity. 800-848-9222. Vic is in New Jersey. Hello, Vic. Frank, how you doing, buddy? Doing all right. Tony Fauci is an egotistical scumbag. What this guy did to kids in this country, you can't even measure it right now. He set kids back so bad. And he has the nerve to get on TV and claim that he's science. And he never changed his mind. He sold out kids for fame and fortune, pretty much. He ne- he never evolved, never acknowledged immu- natural immunity from having COVID, and he actually has the gall to to tell to say in interviews that he's not a political person. In the same breath, invoking January sixth 
for a reason that well, you're that, not Yeah, allowed. that was just ridiculous. That was just you're absolutely not, ridiculous. He said it numerous times. No, I know. And it was crazy. Absolutely crazy. And that has nothing to do with COVID whatsoever. Um, Vic, hang on one second. First of all, I, I would like to, even if you're a Fauci critic, even if anybody's a Fauci critic, I'd like uh, people to try to uh, avoid uh, calling folks names if we can. But, Vic, I want you to I want you to stay on the line as we hear from Ray in Woodhaven, who I think has a different view. Ray, you differ with Vic on this. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, I think it's very uh, tricky trying to do this in hindsight because it was years ago. Remember when this started, we had uh, – what was going on overseas, people dying like crazy and in groups. And we had our president tell us that, oh, we have nine people on a ship in the West Coast, and it's isolated and it won't spread to the mainland. And then when it did spread to the mainland, well, it's like the flu. It'll be gone in September. Right, but, but meanwhile, so then, yeah. the hospitals in New York City had bodies piling up in trucks. My next-door neighbors... So, Ray, talk to me about Fauci's role. uh, Fauci's Fauci's role role was simply we had to turn to somebody, and logically, people knew who he was from the AIDS epidemic, and he had built up this tremendous reputation, especially in New York, coming from Regis High School. Right. No, no, I know his reputation, and I know his history, but you think he did a good job during the the pandemic, and if so, why? Yes, because nobody knew what to do. People are dropping dead all over the place. What do we do? Vic, what, so what about that? Put Vic, a mask on. Vic, what, well, he didn't say that initially. With, with, Vic, what about what due, Ray's saying? With all due respect, I understand for the first couple weeks, but where do you think the president, Donald Trump, was getting his information from? Vic, he, he had a built-in job. This was his job. He was waiting for this. So in the beginning, before it hit hard here, that's the information that he had. It was isolated. People didn't know it was here yet. Okay? That's him listening to Fauci. Fauci was in that role already. He didn't get hired to take care of COVID. That was his job. So, okay, so it hit hard. You, gotta, you don't know what you're dealing with. You shut everything down for a month. And then this guy knew what he was dealing with. And he decided to play a political game and stand there and go against the president, gave him bad information. Well, first of all, first of all, Ray, first of all, Ray, uh, I'll just add, I mean, excuse me, uh, Vic, uh, I'll just add that Donald Trump could have gotten rid of Fauci. He he chose not to. I mean, but but, uh, Frank, at that time, if he had fired Fauci. They were turning him into Jesus Christ. Well, no, that's true. That's true. Ray, um, what about what Vic is saying that, uh, okay, at the beginning, it makes sense to shut everything down. But once we learned more about the transmissibility of the virus and outdoor transmission and youth transmission, that uh, we should have made a movement to do things like open schools in a more timely manner and tell the truth about outdoor transmission. What do you think? Well, I think that we were always one step behind. And the people that say, oh, well, we would develop a natural immunity. Yeah, but again, it takes years. And the hospitals, there were hospitals closing down. There were hospitals where nurses and doctors couldn't get equipment. Right. So right. they kept suggesting these things in an attempt to get an unknown virus 
under control, and I do not think they did a bad job of it. All right, Ray, Vic, thank you both. I appreciate the the respectful uh, commentary there. Larry in Brooklyn, uh, what say you? Okay, I, I, I tend to agree a little bit with Ray. You really can't criticize somebody um, on how they deal with something that's essentially unknown. If they made certain right decisions, okay, that's to their credit. Okay, if the balance was wrong decisions, you really have to look at the motivation. And I consider it to be on a certain level in name to even even have a, to try to even uh, uh, give him a resume on this because there looms a greater question. And that question is, why did this virus get released right after the Mueller report <clears throat> came through and this was a failure? Okay, I don't believe in coincidences, and I refer to other people as non-conspiracy theorists, okay? I, I don't believe in coincidences, and I believe that we have to investigate and find out. What, we already know he has had a role in the research. Now we have to investigate <clears throat> whether there was a role in the release whether Fauci had a role in the release of this virus. All right. Thank you, Larry. 800-848-9222. Bobby is in Belmore. Hello, Bobby. Hello, sirs. Thank you for taking my call tonight. I I, uh, have a lot of difference from what you say tonight, sirs. And um, somebody I know and love is an infectious disease doctor, better than Dr. Fauci. And now that we're going into COVID stage number six, we've got the monkeypox. And something else breaking out. I can't think of it right now. But we need to take caution. And wearing the masks and the inoculations at the infancy of the stage, it was like Jonas Salk doing the the polio vaccinations. They didn't know at the time. And it was something we need to consider. All right. So you think Fauci has done a good job. You think his legacy will be a positive one. I, I don't know about the, the what you guys were talking about with the political version of that and where he stand stood with the um, his his department and it, um, uh, so I don't know anything about that but I said um, I know a couple physicians and one of them being an infectious disease doctor from a very esteemed uh, establishment and he insists on because right now and there um, him and another person that I love and know are working around the clock treating people who just go into stores and touch doorways and, and you know, they're, they're not concerned about what's going on in this world. And I think it's something that should not be, uh, you know, uh, uh, under underestimated. So I'll ask the question again. You think Fauci did a good job, a poor job, or something in between? I think he did a great job. Great job. Okay. 800-848-9222. Joe and Ron Konkuma, what do you think? Hey, Frank, what a hot topic tonight. Um, I feel, as you know, my wife almost passed away from COVID. I think he was the virus. I think he did a horrible job. I think he should have been uh, straight out with the public and said, uh, I, I'm not really sure what's going on. We're going to go step by step. Talk to, talk to tons, thousands of people that lost their jobs, businesses that had to close because of the lockdowns. That should never have happened, Frank. And, you know, instead of giving all this money, Frank, to these students, why don't they reimburse these people more now? Than well, you like- I mean, that, that's not Fauci's fault. The fact that we're, we're giving money for student relief, that has nothing to do with Anthony Fauci. That's, that's a decision made by Congress and the president. We can't, you can't blame Fauci for that. Steve in Manhattan, hello. 
All right, Big Frank. I just want this audience to know that I put the the uh, the, the problem and this whole thing on the shoulders of the Chinese communist leaders. Okay, and if you notice, Fauci's partner, Doctor Deborah Birch Burks, whatever her name is, never gets mentioned. People in the audience don't even know who I just mentioned. Uh, John Hopkins, right, is a research center, so is the Mayo Clinic. I'm going to get to that. But to me, the Keeblerell Fauci, his place in history will be a front man for the insidious establishment. Now, getting back to Hopkins is a research center. It's leading in following and tracking diseases. The Mayo Clinic, again, is a top-notch. Folks, do you remember in the years 2020 or 21, anyone – Anyone calling a press conference, a major conference from Hopkins or the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic, you don't remember it because it never happened, okay? Fauci is put out there to protect the establishment's business partner, China. That's why you call, you hear him getting ripped to pieces. You've never heard me once in 2020 ever praise this guy because I know he's a bureaucrat. He's, and he's a front man. And this disease was well known in 2019, in November and December. And we knew it was going on in China. And we knew China was letting their citizens who were sick or were getting sick to leave China. They were letting them leave and come to America, uh, to Europe, and to Australia to spread that deadly disease. Right. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I, again, I would like to try and keep it focused on Fauci without name calling, uh, without hyperbole, without, you know, um, you know, just on his legacy and where it stands in balance. All right, 800-848-9222. We'll try and grab a few more calls, uh, not only on this topic, but you can comment on anything that we've covered thus far on the show. 800-848-9222, including Kenneth's haircut. I was somewhat disappointed in the uh, lack of response, the lack of caller response to how uh, handsome Kenneth is. Because if we're going to talk all about uh, crime and, uh, and, and infectious diseases, it's going to be a pretty depressing show, which is not something I have any interest in doing. Uh, we will talk Atlantic City in about 40 minutes with uh, Michael Traeger and gambling in general. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. In the Murano household, financially, a very positive day. couple of things here, okay? Uh, number one, I heard back from my uh, car dealership, right? Now, my lease is up, right? I'm on borrowed time. I was supposed to return this car, um, you know, on uh, August 16th. And remember, the situation was this. I w- we, my wife and I were talking about going to one car, which we're going to do to save some money. And a caller called up, and uh, we have to go back and get this guy's name because if this works, we're going to give this guy a prize or something. I may even buy this guy dinner. 
And a caller called up and says, no, buy out the car, get a loan to buy out the car if you have to, and then sell it and make $10,000. So I just got an SMS text message right before the show that um, they are going to give me about the dealership itself without me going through the rigmarole of getting a loan or something. The dealership itself is going to buy my car, which is a lease, for about six or seven thousand dollars. So I am in sitting pretty here, thanks to that guy. Huge thank you to him, because now the biggest problem that Rachel and I have is going to be fighting over the radio presets. Then, if you're a taxpayer in this country, thank you very much. Because I'm sure by now you have heard the news of uh, student loan forgiveness. Here's President Biden. My campaign for president, I made a commitment. I made a commitment that would provide student debt relief. And I'm honoring that commitment today. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. Now, uh, he continued about why he's not apologizing for helping Americans. I will never apologize for helping Americans working, working Americans middle class, especially not to the same folks who voted for a $2 trillion tax cut that mainly benefited the wealthiest Americans and the biggest corporations that slowed the economy, didn't do a hell of a lot for economic growth, and wasn't paid for and racked up this enormous deficit. Well, this is not paid for either. I want to be very clear about that. I have some questions about this as a policy for some of the reasons that Judge Stranieri brought up on the radio the other day, namely that um, if you make the decision to not go to college and buy a medallion to have a taxi and borrow money for that, or you borrow money to have a falafel court cart on 49th Street and work and um, create jobs and create tax revenue, nobody's bailing you out. Nobody's forgiving the loan that you took for your taxi medallion or for your falafel cart. Also, the majority of the people that get these student loans are middle-class and upper-middle-class white people. And this is an instance where the lower end and minorities are bailing out in terms of taxes. They're subsidizing upper-middle-class white people. That being said, my wife Rachel has $3,000 in student loans, which are about to be forgiven, and she is going to have no more student loan payments. So that's exciting. We're having a tough time with the sound effects today, Matt. We got to figure out a way that I can control the sound effects again because it is it is tough. I know you got a lot going on there, but we got to figure it out. So thank you very much if you are a taxpayer in this country. And finally, I happen to be a New York City resident. Yesterday, you know who called into this show? Uh, the minority leader of the New York City Council, Joe Borelli. And um, you know what he did yesterday morning? He's a Republican, but he went to a bill signing. Right. He went to a bill signing with Mayor Eric Adams as they announced a special property tax rebate. And uh, in fact, Mayor Eric Adams gave the Republican City Council minority leader a special shout out. Uh, Good morning. I'm really pleased to be joined today by four of my colleagues in government as we uh, sign a bill that brings uh, relief to New York homeowners. We're here with the co-sponsors, Councilman Justin Brennan, Councilman Calman Yeager, Councilwoman 
Camilla Hanks, Camilla Hanks, and um, longtime uh, fighter for this bill, Councilman Joe Borelli. This is something that you found important for many years. And it was nice that Mayor Adams recognized the minority leader there. Um, Property tax rebate for New York City homeowners, middle-class New York City homeowners. We are getting another $150. Thank you, New York City taxpayers. Uh, So in addition, if you include that with the money that Kathy Hochul gave us, I mean, it's our money they gave, uh, that means we're getting a $450 all-told property tax rebate. So this was a very good day. Between Biden forgiving my wife's student loan, between Eric Adams and Joe Borelli giving us a property tax rebate, and uh, the Toyota dealership giving me six or seven thousand dollars for my car, I am uh, I'm going to be lighting my cigars with hundred dollar bills this weekend and getting ready to have quite a party in Atlantic City when I return there next week. Speaking of Atlantic City, we'll delve into that with Michael Traeger. From TravelZork.com, a guy that knows a great deal about the world of gambling and hotel and resort destinations. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Until then, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, I'm really glad that Jesse Ventura is out there. As you know, I've been an admirer of Jesse Ventura for uh, many years, going back to his time as a pro wrestler, his time as a broadcaster, his time as a governor, his time as a pundit. And even though we may disagree on many issues, and he goes a little further than I do in a bunch of different areas, I've really enjoyed my conversations with him on this show over the years. I've been trying to get him back on to promote this new podcast that he's doing with his son, Ty. And it's interesting, and I really enjoy it. It's um, it's uh, Jesse Ventura's Die First and Then Quit. Actually, this is, I'm not sure if, it, if there's a podcast and then there's a Substack. So I lose track of which is which, but because uh, I subscribe to everything that he does. But I'm glad that they're out there, Jesse and Ty Ventura, because they focus on a lot of issues that the rest of us don't spend enough time on. And they were the only people that I have heard going on about the Biden administration essentially going drone crazy. As summer comes to a close, and by the way, we are going to get to some fun stuff, too, because uh, otherwise I'm just going to I'm going to go I want to gargle with Xanaflesh if all we do is talk about death and destruction and crime. We've got to get to some fun stuff and we'll talk about Atlantic City coming up in about 20 minutes now. As summer comes to a close, the Biden administration appears to be turning up the heat in the African country of Somalia after multiple reports of drone strikes have somehow gone unreported in most of the mainstream press in this country. So while a lot of cable news hosts or journalists are gnashing their teeth over the war in Ukraine with Russia... They have pretty much told, uh, turned a blind eye 
to the latest American military adventurism that we are conducting in Africa. Antiwar.com. The U.S. launched an airstrike in Somalia on August 14th, the second bombing within a week. Now, this is the words of Antiwar.com, signaling that the Biden administration is escalating the U.S. war against al-Shabaab. They go on to point out that this escalation of airborne violence has been an ongoing, all-summer-long affair, stating that the last U.S. airstrike AFRICOM announced in Somalia took place on August 9th, and before that it was July 17th. The escalation comes after President Biden ordered up to 500 troops to be sent to the East African nation of Somalia, reversing a Trump-era drawdown. So while in this country we've been suffering under exorbitant gas prices, rising inflation, the effects of everything from climate change to increasing violence on the streets of our city, the Biden administration has been quietly spending vast sums of our money raining hellfire on one of the poorest countries in the world. And uh, it reminded me, and the Venturas in their substack made a similar point, of this classic George Carlin bit. This country's only 200 years old, and already we've had 10 major wars. We average a major war every 20 years in this country, so we're good at it. And it's a good thing we are. We're not very good at anything else anymore. Can't build a decent car, can't make a TV set or a VCR worth the Got no steel industry left, can't educate our young people, can't get health care to our old people, but we can bomb the out of your country, all right? We can bomb the out of your country, all right? Especially if your country is full of brown people. Oh, we like that, don't we? That's our hobby. That's our new job in the world, bombing brown people. Iraq, Panama, Grenada, Libya, you got some brown people in your country, tell them to watch the f*** out, or we'll bomb them. Dig a little deeper into recent military operations in Africa, and you'll discover that the Biden administration seems to have grown quite fond of bombing Somalia. Brett Wilkins of CommonDreams.com writes that according to data from the UK-based monitor group Air Wars, U.S. forces have bombed Somalia at least 16 times during Biden's tenure, killing between 465 and 545 suspected militants. On March 13th, a joint U.S. drone and Somali airstrike killed a staggering 200 alleged militants. Now, naturally, if anybody asks the Pentagon about possible civilian casualties amidst all this mayhem, you get the standard line about how we take great pains to make sure that no innocent people are ever killed in our bombings. The U.S. government loves to try and convince us that only evil countries like Russia ever kill innocent civilians and that rarely, if ever, do good people happen to accidentally find themselves at the business end of our drone strikes? Now, if you believe that, 
we have a bridge in Brooklyn that may soon be eligible to have congestion pricing charged on it that I would love to sell you. So if you crunch the data, Brett Wilkinson with uh, Common Dreams discovered that in reality, since 2007, the U.S. military has carried out 260 actions in Somalia, 260 actions. While the Pentagon only admits to killing five civilians and wounding 11 others in a campaign that they claim has killed as many as 3,010 militants, Air Wars estimates that 78, between 78 and 153 civilians, including 20 to 23 children, have died in U.S. attacks. Think about that. 20 to 23 children. Gone, dead, snuffed out of existence. For what? The U.S. war on terror. Well, what good is a war on terror if all you're doing is creating more terrorists? And what do you think becomes of the family of an innocent child that's killed by an American drone? Do you think they pick up an American flag and start waving it all over Africa? No. They're much more likely to become terrorists. Who do you think the family members who saw their child vaporized by a U.S. bomb are going to blame? You think they're going to blame ISIS or al-Qaeda or al-Shabaab? No, would you? If the FBI decided to drone your neighborhood in an effort to kill gang members of MS-13 and in the process they killed your brother, your sister, your children, who would you hold accountable? That is the ugly truth that no one seems to want to even talk about anymore. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't use drones. I recognize that there's a role for drones. And I recognize that there are terrorist militant groups out there that we have to deal with. But our war on terror has been raging for so long that we barely even acknowledge that it exists. And that routinely we're killing all sorts of people with flying robots, flying killer robots. Um, there is an epic vacuum of lives and tax tax dollars that have been forever lost to a war that's become so common that 20-something children can die on a summer day in August, and it barely even registers a headline or a quick blurb. So I'm not saying we should stop using drones to kill terrorists, but I'm, I am saying that we should have a conversation about this. In the press, I, I mean, to me, it's 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 incredible the dichotomy between Ukraine coverage, Ukraine coverage, Ukraine coverage, and not a word about what's happening in Yemen, not a word at what's happening in Somalia. Why? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. You're welcome to comment if you like. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Those of you that are holding, I'll get to you in a moment, but. I did want to say I got an incredible response to our interview two days ago with Alex Bennett. And it's funny, that caller who, and you know who else said he got an incredible response? Alex Bennett. And I was glad that uh, Alex Bennett told me a lot of people heard him on this show because he kind of basically, in our interview, I'm paraphrasing here, in our interview he basically said that radio was dead. And I think that... um, Reports of radio's demise are greatly exaggerated. And the one caller called in after Alex was on, and he talked about the moment 
that um, Ale- that uh, John Lennon was on the show and threw up in the studio. And um, Alex Bennett was listening to that guy, and he said he remembers that quite well. And it seems like Alex doesn't remember a lot from those days at WMCA. And he said that um, he had it on tape. I said, well, I'd love to hear that. So he sent me a recording of John Lennon being served with a summons on air, basically, while he's being interviewed on the Alex Bennett show on WMCA. I think it was MCA, yeah. And not PLJ, MCA. And um, you do not hear, Alex sent it to me, and I listened to it. I thought it was brilliant. You do not hear John Lennon vomiting, but you hear everything else. You hear... um, him saying that he was getting sick and then he had to go to the bathroom. He got up and left and he uh, threw up in the bathroom, not in the studio. So you're not going to hear him throwing up. Those of you that tune into this show hoping that you'll hear a beetle vomiting, I hate to disappoint you, but this is the run-up to John Lennon, one of the most famous musicians of all time, uh, losing his lunch on the re- in the restroom as he was appearing on the Alex Bennett program. Anybody has seen Kelly? K-E-L-L-Y. What's this? We have a special delivery for you. Special delivery? It's the bomb. Oh, it's my leaving. What's this? Oh, I'm here by summons. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I've just been summoned. Bye. <laughs> they should never kick me off the end. You just handed yeah, in the summons. Oh, I see. That's just a job. That don't mean nothing. Oh. <laughs> Northern songs are summons in uh, me and Paul and Linda and John Doe and Richard Rowe. I didn't know Andy was involved in it. Well, our life is always so... Do you often get summonses while you're doing radio programs? This is the first time I've actually had a summons on the air, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you. What? It's a lot of uh, wonderful paper, and it has flowers on the back of it. You are hereby summoned to answer the complaint in this action and to serve a copy of your answer, or if the complaint is not served with this summons, to the service of no one. No, no, no. We get about one a month, you know how it is. They're still fighting over the Beatles' gold mine. Are you up to here in legal? I'm up to here in legal. Up to here. Up to here in legal. If, if all this, uh, this uh, hassle... They needn't have gone through this. They could have just sent it to the office. If, uh, it's the last... Oh, Pete's finding it for him. Um, it's a good idea you had, Yoko. <laughs> no, I, I was managed to have very difficult ideas. The, uh, the, the uh, It's not mentioned on the, on the thing there. They are. Crazy. It's not mentioned. Maybe we remember Sergeant Pepper at the end of it, there was a sort of noise going. Is it in the spiral? Yeah. Oh, this is in the spiral? Yeah. It's in the spiral. I think so. That's it's why you can. Spiral, Pete, it's take it back. It's, it's in the spiral. It's in the spiral. Now, our. Now, you see, after paper shoes, after paper it's shoes, in around in the Have you had your breakfast yet? Good morning. Okay. There's traffic okay. in the East yeah. Village. Right <laughs> yeah. While we're doing that, uh, if the action goes through, will Apple still exist or will it be oh, completely sure. this resolved? Is, this is not to do with Apple. This is to do with, uh, I don't know how much I can say that. This is to do with Northern Songs and Mac Len, which are both to do with the publishing of Paul and Mine Song. I think it has something to do with Paul and Linda, Linda writing the things. I'm not sure, you know. Uh-huh. I, I think uh, it's uh, because Paul and I own Mac Land between us, most of it. Anyway, Apple only owns a bit of it. But that Apple jazz, the receiver thing, the receiver has not received Apple. He's re- received the Beatles partnership, or whatever it's called, which is 5% of Apple. 
Yeah, no, 5% of the Beatles used to be one whole thing. Yeah. And they sold 80% to Apple, as if Apple was a separate company. I see. And the 5% remaining is what the receiver's in charge of, which really all it did was, like, uh, pay for your auntie's flowers or get the window pane fixed. <laughs> so that's what he's doing. So I thought that was pretty cool uh, that to hear that, even though you don't hear him actually go through the through the act of vomiting. I thought that was pretty cool to hear the prelude to it. I figured a lot of you would be interested in it as well. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk Atlantic City in about 10 minutes. In the meantime, we have one, two, three, four open lines. You're welcome to them. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, Alex in Brooklyn. Alex, uh, how many times are we going to hear from you today? Uh. I wouldn't tell you. I'm not even going to tell you that it's Alex from Brooklyn. You, you would have to guess yourself. Oh, fair enough. And okay. I, oh, yeah. I actually scammed Sean Hannity as well, and he doesn't know that I scammed him. Well, I it's, told him with a different name, different voice. Uh, you know, it, and, it's in fairness, I mean, look, I, clearly you have an easy time scamming us as well. But, you know, it's easy to get over on Sean Hannity. I will say that. It's not. as. Uh, how Did you try it? Uh, no, but I, I've seen I've seen their whole operation, and I, I kind of know that uh, what goes on. What's on your mind today, Alex? Okay, so I wanted to comment about this um, um, forgiving the student loans of ten thousand dollars. I think it's it's a repeat of Obamacare, not in the way that Obamacare failed, but Obamacare was a scam because instead of having the government pay for all the insurance and pay the pharmaceutical companies for everybody's drugs and medications, what Obama should have done is he should have worked to lower and to force the pharmaceutical companies to lower the drug prices, and then people would be able to afford their insurance um, policies, and insurance would be will- the insurance companies would be will- willing to cover for the medications because it wouldn't be so expensive. And so what, he's, what Joe Biden and the Democrats did now, they encouraged the colleges to continue with their crazy right. prices right. over the through the roof, and it, it's it's just a repeat of Obamacare. I think I think you shouldn't. It doesn't even make sense. You're not talking about. It, it's only going to help certain parts of this country, and I think it's racist because there are more white percentage wise more white people go to college than do blacks. And it's, it just doesn't make any sense. What about the people that paid off their student loans already? Yeah, exactly. Why don't they get it back? Well, or, Right. Or people, yeah. as in the example that Judge Trenary gave, somebody that borrows money to start a, a food a food shop or, or buy a taxi medallion. Why do they right. not get bailed out? Uh, Alex, it's a fine point. I'm sure I'll hear from you 20 more times today. In the meantime, thank you. 800-848-9222. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. I was actually calling about another subject. Comment on whatever you like, Carol. The the world is is yours. The world is your oyster. Say whatever you like. Uh, 1776. All right. Anything else you want to add about that? Well, I saw uh, the original film, and I thought it was fantastic. But I can't see them changing things around. I mean, is that they're going to put transgender people in and all this stuff and everything. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Or people that identify as female or anything of that nature. And and again, what what grates on me even more than that, Carol, is that they're changing the lyrics to some of these songs, which I think is just such a shame. Yeah. And they did the same thing with company, too. I saw Ralph Esparza and company, he's on Law and Order. I'm I'm sure you know, and I thought he was fantastic. 
But then they went and changed. I don't know who changed it. I don't know if Sondheim changed it or not. But then they put a woman in the role. And I, I thought that was bizarre. Yeah, uh, Carol, thank you. I, I'm not familiar with that. I've never seen Company, and it does not have the, the special place in my heart that uh, that 1776 does, so I can't really comment, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to others that are better informed than I am. David is in the Bronx. What's on your mind, David? Yes, good morning, Frank. Morning. I want to set the record straight on this issue about student loan debt because one of your callers did it and your judge friend did it. Yes, the majority of student debt is held by white students, but black students and Hispanic students, because they start out with less wealth to begin with, usually end up owing more money in college loans and take longer to pay it back because of disparities in um, income that are are race-based. Also, the uh, student loan relief will be $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients, which are the people at the very bottom of the pyramid, which also tend to be black and Hispanic. So let's not pretend that this is the program that will largely help just white people, which I find suspect a lot of people that are bringing this up because they don't care about black or Hispanic people anyway. And uh, a quick comment on Al-Shabaab. Yes, this has been going on for at least a decade or more, and you're right. It's not being covered, but let's be honest why it is because it's in Africa, mm. and most Americans don't know about Africa, and they don't care, and that's unfortunate. Our media chooses to cover things that they think people care about, and they realize that this is a story, and Yemen too, that Americans just don't care about or know about and don't want to know about, and that's something that we need to change. Why do you think um, Americans – why do you think, A, I, Americans either don't care about what's happening in Africa or the media believes that Americans are more interested at what's happening in Europe as opposed to what's happening in Africa? Well, this is something that I know you're not going to agree with, but most issues in America, if you break them down to their very basic parts, go come back to the racial issue. Most Americans – don't care about Africa. They don't even know that these are separate African countries. I keep hearing people refer to Africa as if it's one united nation, which it is not. You know, most Americans don't right. know how many countries there are in Africa. They don't understand the different cultures. And it's, it's, a, it's an issue about our education. And it's also a racial issue because, you know, most Americans are, are the people in charge are of European background, and that's the type of area they want to hear about. But I I remember, David, maybe it's about uh, six or seven years ago by now, maybe even a few more, that when in in Nigeria, when those girls were all kidnapped by Boko Haram, there was a great deal of mainstream media attention in this country to the Boko Haram issue and to that kidnapping specifically. Why is it that that issue was able to permeate mainstream news coverage, but the war in Yemen and now the war in Somalia is not? Well, that was a spectacular event. I believe it was over 200 girls. Right. Boko Haram is still active in Nigeria. They're still kidnapping people, attacking Nigerian government, attacking other countries in the region. But again, we don't hear about it anymore, you know, and and, and this is dangerous because it's the places in the world that you don't hear about where the most dangers come from. You know, Ebola has popped up again in Africa recently. I haven't heard about it on mainstream media. I haven't heard it mentioned on this station. 
you know, this is a problem because, you know, the next major disease will probably come from somewhere like Africa or Southeast Asia, and you won't know it until someone lands in one of our airports who has it. And, and that's scary to me. Hey, thank yeah. you, David. I want to try and get in at least one or two other people before we uh, before we talk Atlantic City. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hi, Frank. I want to discuss the, the droning that happened in Afghanistan when we were trying to get retribution for 13 soldiers being killed. We thought we had killed the terrorists. We ended up killing six children. Right. Mid- yep. And yep. I, don't re- I don't recall any – I mean, you just imagine the United States – allowing a drone into our country and killing our, six of our children. And I don't recall there was any apology or public apology to Afghanistan, whatever government they had in place. But it was just embarrassing for the United States to kill children in another country with a drone and just shake it off like nothing happened. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, Mike, you are 100 percent right. Every every syllable that you just said, I, I can't disagree with. 800 800- Eight four eight ninety two twenty two. On to lighter pursuits. So let's see. We covered crime. We covered the destruction of a beautiful American musical. We've discussed. We've covered uh, a horrible pandemic and all the people that died from it. We have covered um, drones killing innocent people, including twenty three children. Whew. I don't know about you, but I need a break. If um, So if you need a break, keep listening. 800-848-9222. Also want to encourage you to join the Facebook group where people are saying that uh, this is either one of our best shows or one of our most boring. I'd like to think the truth is somewhere in between. But if you want to uh, participate in the Facebook group, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, and uh, you can make your voice heard about, um, you know, not only the subjects that we cover, but the guests that we talk to, anything we're doing, the music that we play. Uh, it's meant to be a forum for, you know, discussing what, what goes on on this show. All right. Uh, Michael Traeger from Travel Zork joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Ah, yes, 
Yes, it's that time of the week, our t- the time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting communities anywhere in the world. And uh, it is our time to look at it with one of the most uh, the expert authorities in gambling, in travel, anywhere in the country. Michael Traeger, luxury travel and casino gaming industry entrepreneur and a frequent contributor writer, podcaster with TravelZork.com, and someone who uh, just made a trip to Atlantic City. Michael, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always great to join you, especially after an Atlantic City trip. So how was your trip last weekend? I'm sorry we didn't get to, uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to go at the same time. I am uh, making my return trip to Atlantic City next weekend, but uh, how did you, uh, how did you fare? What, what were the, what were the highlights? It was it was a really great trip. I mean, it was a great a great four day trip. The weather was great. Lots of things going. Uh, lots of things going on. That included the everything Atlantic City big anniversary party, and lots of gambling. Lots of meeting up with friends. So it was a, a really really great trip. Now, um, when, when was the last time you were in Atlantic City before this? Unfortunately, the last time I was in Atlantic City before this was September of last year. All right, so it's been it's been a while, been close to a year. What um, what did you find about how your previous trip to Atlantic City compared to this uh, compared to this one? The gaming experience, the crowds, the uh, the overall you know the overall experience with everything from dining to anything else that you might have experienced. How did year to year? How did you find the trip? I kept you know wondering if it was just me or if things were more crowded than they've ever been in the past and it really things really did seem much more active than they than they have been in the past especially especially because i was there over the weekend but even more so on the casino floor at borgata i don't think i've ever really seen it this busy before and it was sort of cool to see and um do you do anything outside of the casinos when you visit a place like Atlantic City and uh, if so what what did you do what do i do i mostly i mostly stay in the casinos and meet up with friends and usually come up with a very like broad kind of plan. I had dinner at Vic and Anthony's on Friday night with a really good friend. And I convinced that friend to take me to their president's club lounge, which is a really cool duplex lounge, which sort of basically screams Trump castle at you <laughs> at, uh, at golden nugget. So that was absolutely awesome. Uh, we went to the EAC group meetup on Saturday, which was great. And, and was that on- at Borgata or at golden nugget? No, that actually was at Bally's and that was sponsored by Bally's and they did a wonderful job in the yard with that. It was a super classy party and they they just put together a great party for that everything Atlantic City uh, group. And I was I was super impressed by it. And also Bally's is pretty impressive. You know, the changes there. And I got I actually got a chance to see one of their suites and the room product is is really phenomenal at Bally's, and I know you've spoken about that a little bit before. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm excited to go. I still haven't checked out that uh, revolving bar that's there, and uh, some of the other new amenities that they uh, that they have to offer. I'm hoping to check it out on my next trip. So you hit Borgata, you hit Golden Nugget, you hit Bally's. Any other casinos that you hit on your recent trip? Uh, I mean, that's Caesar, a lot, you know. you know, and uh, and Caesars actually. I I wandered over to, I wandered over to Caesars for a little while, and that was actually really fun late at night because they did a, 
they did a slot poll. They did a live uh, group slot poll at the EAC party. And Raja from the Big Jackpot and uh, Jackie Jackpot, who are big on YouTube with these slot pools, uh, hosted that. And I happened to coincidentally run into them at Caesars High Limit late that night. So that was sort of cool. Cool. Absolutely. The, uh, so you, casino stuff. Absolutely. So you hit four out of the nine casinos in Atlantic City. And uh, although you left uh, yesterday, they had the air show in Atlantic City, which is always a big event. You left before the air show. You didn't want to stick around for the air show? I would have loved to stick around for the air show, but I sort of feel that four nights is, is enough time. And <laughs> four nights is really enough time. And I've got to tell you a funny story about the air show. I, I had sort of forgotten about it. And they were doing practice on Tuesday. And I was on the 42nd floor of Borgata. And one of those fighter jets like came right over Borgata heading out to the ocean. And I literally jumped out of my, care, of my chair. I was doing some email. It was pretty funny. I was like, what the hell was that? That's cool. That's cool. Hey, so we saw some numbers in terms of the Atlantic City gaming revenue a week or so ago, um, and it is very clear that uh, Borgata, in spite of the fact that it's uh, nearly 20 years old, is still the top of the heap when it comes to the Atlantic City uh, gaming experience. How well is the Borgata doing as compared to the other properties in Atlantic City? It's it's incredible. I mean, July in July, Borgata had basically their best month ever for an Atlantic City casino. And and that also, you know, that that also meant that the brick and mortar part of it was also a very, very strong uh, number. They had a $124 million win in July of 2022, which is basically a monthly record. And while I have some bias towards Borgata because I've always liked the property, I've always felt really good there, People seem to really be coming back and really liking the gaming experience, and you can sort of see it at the property. So that's that's really that's really something that's great to great to see. I don't know. I think you're a fan of Borgata, also. I, you know, I I, I am, but uh, I in recent years I, I've been frustrated with some of the changes that have ma- they've made at at, the Bor- at Borgata, and we'll talk craps in a minute. But the the fact that you can't bet five times odds at all the craps on all the craps numbers i find so um irksome number one i used to really enjoy um having a drink at the b bar and being able to smoke a cigar which they don't allow you to do anymore and i I really like the um the boardwalk casinos being able to kind of casino hop and hotel hop and um take you know have a good time at the ocean and then walk over to the hard rock and uh walk over to Showboat, walk over to Bally's, walk over, uh, do a leisurely stroll on the boardwalk and smoke a cigar and, and have a drink on the boardwalk. That experience is a little lacking at the Borgata. I love so much about the Borgata. It's got great restaurants. I love the lobby bar at the Borgata. I just, um, it, you know, it's it's certain things that they do that I feel like they, they don't necessarily have the the players' best interests at, uh, I guess, no place does. But you get the sense that they're they're not necessarily looking to let the player have much of an advantage. I mean, um, but it sounds like your enthusiasm for the Borgata remains undiminished. Yes, but can, you know what? I'm going to agree and disagree a little bit with you on a few things. Okay. And I remember, you know, it was funny. Before the show, I said, I know he's going to bring up the three, four, five times odds at craps because I know that drives you absolutely, absolutely insane. And, and I agree. I, give, I agree completely because historically, Atlantic City was always five times right. 
always five times everywhere. And that was one of the first changes. What's so interesting is that's one of the first changes that happened once MGM took over Borgata. And that obviously got everybody very worried because you said, uh-oh, this is the first change that's going to happen. Wait till all the other changes come. And I'm going to sort of counter that with the fact that Borgata only has 3-2 blackjack and pretty much so every other MGM casino in the country has 6-5 blackjack. It's, you know, ubiquitous in Las Vegas. But so for it, some it, it, reason, explain, explain to folks what that means, Michael. So that means if you if you get blackjack or if you get 21, if you're dealt 21 while you're playing blackjack, instead of paying uh, getting paid six to five at the Borgata, you're paid three to two. What does that actually mean in terms of uh, how the difference in money that you're making if you get 21? It's it's really quite substantial. It's a couple of percentages, uh, percentage points on the on the house edge. So that's something that really drives gamblers crazy because they're giving up a lot to the house. And the game was meant to pay three to two, three units for every two. It was not meant to pay six to five. That's the way blackjack always was. And then they came up with this six to five idea so that the house could make a couple extra percentage points. Because remember blackjack, if it's a good three to three to two game with all the best rules. And by the way, I'm not, I, I happen to really not like blackjack, but I know most people really like it. It's it's a close to a 1% house edge game. It could even be less than 1% house edge if the rules are really good. But six to five changes all of that because the payout, basically you're losing money on all of your blackjack payouts. And that has been one of the things that has really irked gamblers. And I am just so impressed to see that Borgata has kept all 3-2 blackjack. And that's not something that MGM does. So that's sort of telling me, that's telling me that they've thought a little bit about their tables. And when I was walking around, I try to, I try to walk around and look at like, you know, what's going on here with the action? How many tables are open? Like Saturday morning around 3 a.m., I was looking at Baccarat because I know you love Baccarat mm-hmm. too. And, and they had four forty dollars to $20,000 tables, two $200 to $20,000 tables. And then in high limit, they had two $300 to $20,000 tables. That's a significant number of tables open at 3 a.m. Also, what's really impressive at Borgata is for Baccarat, they're allowing you to go to a $20,000 uh, max bet. But was what was even more impressive though on Monday night at eleven o'clock they had approximately twenty blackjack tables open, and they had fifteen dollar, twenty five dollar, fifty dollar, one hundred dollar, two hundred dollar, and five hundred dollar tables. And the only tables that weren't full, which makes sense, were the five hundred dollar tables. Mm. Uh, so that's that's telling me that obviously they're still extremely committed to their table games and they're and they're not making the changes that that MGM is is making at some other properties so perhaps they're sort of letting the management team at Borgata do what should be and this is what I surmise being less about MGM and more about Borgata and running things the way they always have there. Well that's and interesting. That's, yeah, I, I hope that's the case. But then, you know, we had one of the vice presidents from Bally's on and we were talking about craps, and he was telling me they offer 
they they're offering ten times craps uh, odds at uh, at Bally's, which is extraordinary. I mean, I can't wait to go play there. It's I mean, it sounds uh, sounds like a great uh, opportunity and experience. Although the last couple of times that I've been to Atlantic City, the the folks at Hard Rock have been very nice to me about uh, giving me a comp room. So I feel like if I'm going to bet and lose money, that I should try and lose it. I should try and lose it there because I, I owe it to them. But uh, I will definitely uh, be sure to check out the. Uh, the Baccarat and the Blackjack offerings at the uh, at the Borgata because it is such a beautiful property. There's so much going on. But with two decades in and a lot of newer properties uh, kind of always trying to challenge their supremacy for the gambling market, how, in your view, has Borgata been able to be so successful for so long? I think they've managed to be so successful because they under they understand their they understand their customers. I think they understand also the importance of the casino customers. That's one. I mean, one great example is they've had one of the best VIP lounges, Amphora, for many, many Mm. years. People love that perk. Also, you know, the promotions now, the tie in the promotions with MGM seem to be pretty strong. You know, one thing that is great about Borgata is I did not get devalued from last year. I played about the same that I regularly do, but I wasn't able to show up three or four months later. And my offers were still pretty much so alive almost a year later, which tells me that they really are trying to get you to come back. Also, there were so many promotions this weekend. I had, you know, between the free bets and the slot tournament that they threw in there and other things, they seem to they seem to be doing a really good a really good job with that. And I think also, especially in these days, people love the idea of being part of a really good national loyalty program like MGM Rewards because then they can get comp rooms in Las Vegas mm. and that's really that's really strong. So I think I think there's, you know, I think there are a number of reasons there, but I also think you've got more, you know, you've got more tables you know, for table game play players, this is really a mecca. I don't think there is any casino in Atlantic City that comes close to the number of table games that they have. And, you know, your our mutual friend, Ed, from the 33 uh, football pool, who was actually there with his lovely wife. Actually, she's even more lovely than Ed is, even though I think he's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I said that on purpose because I, I want to really get on his wife's Ed's, side. That's really guy. smart. Uh, you know, he reminds me largest selection of Pi Gal poker, best crap stealers, which I I'm as far as everywhere that I play. I haven't played that much at Hard Rock, so I have to be fair there. So I have to say I don't really have those data points, but I feel that the win, the win Las Vegas crap stealers and the Borgata crap stealers are the best crap stealers in the, in the country. Wow. Uh, it also reminded me about the three, two blackjack, you know, best, <clears throat> best poker room in town. I mean, there's a lot going on. They also have a lot of games like, like Spanish 21, which aren't there. So obviously they understand this and they have a lot of tables open. And I think, I think that makes a difference. Also, Borgata has a lot of slot machines, uh, more slot machines than most of the Atlantic City casinos. Yeah, so that's that why my big... mom is such a fan of the Borgata. She likes to go there for the uh, for the slots. She's a, a slots a slots player. So, how did you do overall gambling wise? Uh, gambling wise, uh, for the is it what is this? The gambler, uh, I, I broke even, which means which you realize code for 
I broke even for the weekend means that I that I had a small loss, but it was all pretty good. And I was there for four days and the comps were more than what the loss was. So great. it was really a win. Great. Uh, that's <laughs> great. In terms of how Atlantic City is doing overall, aside from the Borgata, which you've made clear is doing well, uh, brick and mortar wise and uh, their electronic gaming. How are the rest of the Atlantic City casinos faring uh, this year in general and overall? I think that, let's see, there are, you basically have the, you have a couple of casinos that are doing really, really well. And then you have the others that aren't doing really well. And at the top of the heap is, you know, off the top of my head, you've got Hard Rock, Ocean, and Borgata, which are consistently doing really well. And then everybody else is not doing as well. And I think you uh, shared with me and we were briefly discussing, I think it was the Q2 numbers, which also gets very confusing this time of year when you're, when you have a month like July, that's very strong. And then they're reporting everything that happened from Q2. Right. And some of the, some of the casinos are not, are definitely not doing as well as, as the other ones. So I think that could be a little bit, I mean, I think that could be a little bit of a concern, uh, that's that's something that you know you really have to look at. And Bally's, even with all of these improvements, you know, had an operating loss in in Q2. So that's uh, that's interesting. Also in Q2, another very interesting number is that the Ocean Casino had the highest average daily rate for hotel rooms in the second quarter, while resorts had the lowest rate. And that's that's sort of interesting on the revenue. Uh, the revenue hotel rates also in the second quarter hard rock had the highest hotel occupancy at over 95%. So definitely hard rock is making some really, really impressive moves. How did you uh, end up getting you Atlantic city this trip? This trip is interesting. I American airlines has started a new, this is American airlines has started a new bus service from Philadelphia airport. So for many different reasons, operational reasons, uh, you know, not having enough pilots, not having enough planes. They've actually de- decided to start running buses from Philadelphia airport, which look, they, it looks just like your regular airline ticket. So I flew in from Charlotte and I had a ticket that said from Charlotte to Philadelphia to Atlantic City. But that final mile from Philadelphia was actually serviced by a bus, hmm. which departed airside at Philadelphia airport, which was really interesting. And how did you, uh, how did, how did you enjoy the whole bus experience? I've been on some buses that were kind of rough and some, eh, you know, that were pretty luxurious. It, it was fabulous. It was two seats on one side, one seat on the other side, hmm. uh, power. It actually had Wi-Fi if you needed it. And I just, I actually just wrote a quick article on the travel website, God Save the Points. And it's really a nifty, it's really a nifty service. And it seems to be going, it seems to be going well. So they might, they might increase it. And I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty good. And also like if you check in at an airport, like if you were flying from Charlotte, you could check your bag in Charlotte and it automatically gets transferred to the bus. And when you get off your plane from Charlotte to Philadelphia, you just walk to the other gate where there's a bus. So it's, it's something I, 
I, I think it's a I think it's a pretty decent idea. And I know people might be a little bit negative on it, you know, about not flying into Atlantic City Airport, but it's it's providing an easy way to get to Atlantic City Airport, which gets you to Atlantic City. Well, it sounds like it was a, a great trip. And uh, it sounds like the Borgata is uh, is still the the big, big guy in town to be reckoned with. And uh, by the way, the gaming experience in Atlantic City, either anecdotally as a player or statistically as an expert that studies this stuff. And by the way, we've been talking with Michael Traeger, who's with TravelsOrc.com. Check out all the great content that's on there. How do you how do you compare those two cities, Atlantic City and Las Vegas? I know it's a sort of an unfair comparison because Las Vegas is so much grander, but um, I'm going to ask you to make the comparison anyway. I like gambling in Atlantic City overall more than in Las Vegas. I think it's it's basically, especially at a game like craps where you want people to know what they're doing. I mean, it's just impressive. You know, you've got people who've been playing the game forever. I opened a $10 table at at Borgata on Monday morning with a friend and the table was full. I think it was around 10 o'clock in the morning and, and the dealers and the players, like everybody knows what they're doing. And it's super impressive. I also was super impressive. I had this guy next to me. I was talking to Seymour who is 90 years old and with a beer and still playing craps, uh, telling me about the Korean war and discussing, you know, his life and everything. And then asking me some questions about some of the new proposition bets, like the all tall small, but I just, I think people are there to gamble and I love that, you know, and that's, and, and it's different than in Las Vegas where sure. people are more so there to party, would you say? Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's different. It's a different kind of, it's, it's a different kind of mix. And also other things at Borgata, which you notice, you know, between like bathroom attendants, clean bathrooms, cocktail service with really nice glassware, uh, clean ashtrays all over the place. I mean, all of those things are, are still happening. But I would say, I mean, Vegas is a party and it's, it's, just a, it's just a little bit different. Also, I like something that's called coffee dice, which means that you get your coffee in the morning at the dice table and you buy in for a small amount, though I don't always buy in for a small amount in the morning and you drink your coffee. And they have at Borgata that you can get espresso over oh. ice. But the tables are full and there are a lot of people playing. Right. Whereas in a lot of other places, there just aren't a lot of people playing early in the morning. So I, I just like having that action. And that's and honestly, that's probably not just at Borgata. That's at a, at a number of casinos. But it just seems it just seems like more dice tables are open on a Monday morning at Borgata. Mm. Of course, I'd like to qualify that. Sure. Uh, Michael, we're going to have to end it there. It's always a treat uh, talking with you. It seems like uh, there's never enough time for us to chat. uh, But uh, unfortunately, our time together has come to an end. I look forward to our next conversation. Yes, absolutely. And thank you again for having me on. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, I am uh, trying to get m- as many followers on Instagram as LeBron James so that I could have sponsored tweets for $487,000. So far, that is not going so well. Uh, there, I have about 130 million followers short of that. So if you'd like to help me narrow the gap... You could follow me on Instagram at Morano Vision. That's M O R A N O Vision. So I, I meant to tell you yesterday, I had my dinner with the prisoner that I helped get out of prison recently. A uh, great guy. I don't know if he wants me to use his name, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna mention it. And uh, it was basically he was in prison until three weeks ago, and he's been making up for lost time. So I was going in to meet him. And he insisted, he was very grateful that I'd written this letter to help get him out of prison. So he insisted that he take me to dinner. Okay? And Bryce? Fine. Okay. And then he basically says, as I'm driving in, Frank, I'm eager and excited to meet you tonight. I feel bad because I offered to treat you to dinner, which I really wanted to. However, a transaction I was supposed to get has not arrived. So I'm not in a position to treat tonight, but I will be in a position to treat you in the foreseeable future. I'd still like to meet you tonight just to thank you in person and talk if that's all right. So I I asked, does that mean you just want to meet for a drink or coffee or something? Or do you want to have dinner still? And he says, no, let's still have dinner. So lo and behold, I ended up paying for the dinner. Now, that's my reward. Now, actually, this guy was such a nice guy that I didn't mind paying. But it was kind of annoying on the way in. But my annoyance waned when I, I got to know him a little bit. So that was fun. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. A lot to get to this hour. We have, let me see here, we have a list of, uh, I like doing this. This is fun. We have a list of one, two, oh, no, we did that one yesterday. Okay. We have a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, oh, at least, what, fifty. Possible subjects that I am ready to discuss. So I don't know how to choose, so I like to add a little element of randomization to it. We'll try and get to one, two, three, four. We'll try and get to four or five of them, right? We'll do at least three. Uh, so we are going to spin our wheel of topics and see where indeed it lands. Let us spin the wheel.
Well, this is interesting. Shaquille O'Neal, famous basketball player, one of the most famous players of all time, one of the people, one of the few people in the history of the NBA that was able to make the transition from athlete to star, actor, great in uh, the only movie that he did that I think was really great was Blue Chips. He's phenomenal in that. But he also did some other films and uh, some very successful films as well. One of the most famous commercial spokespeople ever. And seems like a real character and a nice guy. So on Tuesday, the NBA legend appeared on a radio show. I think it's a radio show or maybe it's like an internet show that's also on the radio. It's based in Australia. It's a show called The Kyle and Jackie O Show. And he did not hold back. While airing out flirtatious comments to co-host Jackie O. Henderson. There's a little bit of uh, Shaquille O'Neal being pretty openly flirtatious on the Kyle and Jackie O. show. Is that the lovely Jackie O? It is. (laughs) Jackie O is worldwide. Yeah. <laughs> I love you. Good oh, my God, favourite guest ever. Let me tell everyone. Okay, the evening with Shark. I don't want to talk to you, Kyle. I only want to talk to Jackie. Oh, oh this is good. Ones. I have so many questions. Hey, too, Jackie, so how are you? Fun. I'm good. I'm good. Kyle, <laughs> yeah. when, I'm, when I move to Sydney, it's going to be the Shaq and Jackie O show. Well, my friend, I will, I will move your papers out of the right chair. Now. Any problem. You, you come on and do it. Well, listen. When I come to the studio, I'm going to hug Jackie O, and I'm just going to push you out of your seat. <laughs> Jesus, Kyle. Don't be there that day. Thing. Back to the Got it, yeah. tough guy. <laughs> Jackie O before you, and that's it. Am I intimidating you? There, Sha- I'm not even looking at you, Kyle. I'm looking at I Jackie know. O. I know. Put me on Jackie O. I don't want to look at Santa Claus. <laughs> nice Kyle, I'm sorry. Wow, I'm really feeling drink. it. There you are. Hey. Hi. <laughs> nice ponytail. I like it. <laughs> Thanks. Anyway. Thank you, sir. Thanks, right. Jack. Shaquille O'Neal. Bye, Jackie. Love right you. Here. Love you too, baby. Go on. Have a little make out of it. I don't know. <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal this morning here at Kiss FM. So O'Neal was in Australia ahead of a number of appearances across Melbourne and Sydney that he was promoting. Now, uh, DJ Diesel, which is Shaquille O'Neal's stage name, is uh, performing at a nightclub in Melbourne, and uh, then he's doing some other things in in Sydney where he's DJing, which I guess is his thing now. You know, that's interesting. I um, Maybe it's because I don't look like Jackie O. I don't think I've ever had a guest, famous, not famous, kind of flirt with me on the air. That's a rare... Uh, I don't know how common that is in radio these days. I, I was listening to, you know, a bunch of people were emailing me Alex Bennett stories. And um, apparently, and Alex Bennett referenced this, you know, when we spoke in our interview, Alex Bennett was a real ladies man and would meet a lot of his potential dates for at, through his radio show, callers and things of that nature. And uh, I don't think that that is too common these days. Maybe it's more common on the FM dial, but that was kind of fun, and it seemed like everybody, both Kyle and Jackie O, and of course Shaquille O'Neal, sort of dealt with that in good humor. I was expecting, and maybe because it's a silly FM show, and maybe because Shaquille O'Neal is 
kind of a, you know an athlete. I was this didn't occur, but I was expecting more of an outcry in the in the community of Twitter critics. Uh, f- folks saying that this wasn't professional or that Shaquille O'Neal was degrading women or something along those lines. But I didn't see any real criticism of it. I don't know if you did or if you think that was inappropriate. You're welcome to comment on that. 800-848-9222. That is 800-848-9222. Let us spin the wheel again. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, this is also so pseudo-celebrity-ish. Olivia Wilde. Now, I know Olivia Wilde is famous, and I know that she's a famous actress. Um, I don't remember what she's most famous for. I know I've seen her before, but, you know, I have this sort of a facial blindness, and maybe this sounds sexist, but I have a facial blindness when it comes to women and actresses. I just don't recognize actresses. I think there are five actresses that I can tell you who they are. I certainly recognize Meryl Streep, right? Uh, Glenn Close, I can recognize. And then uh, Sandra Bullock, I know her. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, I know. And uh, let's see, maybe... Aniston? Yeah, I guess I would recognize Jennifer Aniston. All the friends. Uh, you know what, though? I don't know if I... Yeah, Courtney Cox, I would, I but... All these big female actresses, I don't really, I can't place them. I don't know where I've seen them before. I don't know what they're famous for. What is Olivia Wilde famous for? Most famous for being on House, the TV show. Oh, the ho- House. The House. Doc, Doctor House. Right, right. That was she was on that. Show. But didn't she do something else, too, that was well known? I only know her from House. Oh, I mean, from she House. was an so actress, and then she was engaged to... Uh, Jason Sudeikis right. okay. for a long time. So maybe maybe that's why I don't know her because I never I never saw a house and I realized that's a very popular show and everybody loved it. But it is interesting that you mentioned Jason Sudeikis because uh, that is precisely why she is in the news again. Olivia Wilde is not mincing words when it comes to her custody battle with her ex, and I think she's dating someone famous now. Also, I read about that this weekend. Her ex, Jason Sudeikis, the. Don't Worry Darling director addressed being served with legal papers on stage at CinemaCon in April in a new interview with Variety. She described it as vicious and uh, suggested that the star of Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis, was... Well, in fact, I think we have a little bit of her describing what happened in this interview with Variety. This is Olivia Wilde. This is for me right now. Oh, this is actually what happened at CinemaCon. <laughs> very mysterious. I'm going to open it now because it feels like it's time. Is this script? Oh, okay. Got it. Thank you. Now, that was interesting. And it's interesting that we ended up playing that the same day that we played John Lennon getting served with a summons. I've been served with papers many times over the years. It's almost always been for a political matter. Usually when you're in politics, you get served with lawsuits all the time. And, um, you know, I don't, you know, I never tried to avoid being served or anything like that. People you know, have served me. And there's been some funny stories about folks that I know that have been served with different political lawsuits. But, um, you know, it's funny. I Maybe because I've never 
been served with, uh, and I hope never to be, with divorce papers or something of a personal nature. Maybe I've ne- I don't know what it's like to be in the shoes that she was in, where she was served with, you know, custody uh, battle papers. But I would have no problem being served on the air. Let me say, if anyone is thinking of suing me, I have no problem being served live on the radio. You're welcome to do that. And uh, please, the, the staff here at the radio station, if anyone's here to serve me with papers, let them let them write it. But uh, Olivia Wilde did this interview with Variety, and she described that as vicious and said that Jason Sudeikis was trying to sabotage her as she was in the middle of a presentation to sell her film to movie theater owners from around the world. So, and this is sad whenever you have a couple of parents that no longer sees eye to eye and they're no longer able to share their lives together. But Olivia Wilde, who shares Otis and Daisy with Sudeikis, added she wasn't surprised. It was my workplace, said Wilde, who was with Sudeikis for nine years until uh, 2020. And then she started, to, oh, see, this is who she's dating now, Harry Styles, who is a big star now. In any other workplace, it would be seen as an attack. It was really upsetting. It shouldn't have been able to happen. There was a huge breach in security, which is really scary. The hurdles that you had to jump through to get into that room with several badges, plus special COVID tests that had to be taken days in advance, which gave you wristbands that were necessary to gain access to the event. This was something that required forethought. You know, I don't know how you feel. I don't think that that was that bad. Do you disagree? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you've ever served someone with papers or been served with papers, what is the strangest place that you've ever been served with papers or served one with someone with papers? 800-848-9222. So she adds, I hated that this nastiness distracted from the work of so many different people and the studio that I was up there representing, according to Wilde, who took the envelope from the process server and she coolly continued her presentation. That's why I didn't think it bothered her that much. I guess maybe she's just that good of an actress. But she said to try to sabotage that was really vicious, but I had a job to do. I'm not easily distracted. But, you know, sadly, it was not something that was entirely surprising to me. There's a reason I left that relationship. Now, for his part, Sudeikis said at the time he had no prior knowledge of the time or place that Wilde would be served. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that. Um, as it was up to the process-serving company. Well, I guess that's why you hire process-serving companies, right? They serve process. Further, he would never condone her being served in such an inappropriate manner. Well, why is that inappropriate? Again, maybe I'm missing something. If there's a process server that's listening Maybe you could uh, give us a call. I always thought that would be kind of a fun job to be a process server. I'm sure it's not because you have to chase people down who may not want to be served and uh, they're under unusual circumstances and it's difficult and you don't get paid if they're not served. But I always thought it would be kind of adventurous. Uh, you know, There's a movie where, where uh, I think it's uh, – I don't remember who, uh, not uh, not Jonah Jonah Hill, but the guy that's always with Jonah Hill in all those pictures. Um, you know who I'm talking about. You know, uh, he's got, kind of got a kind of got a uh, Michael Sarah. No, no, no. Um, uh, you know who I Franco? mean? Franco. No, Seth Rogen. Oh, Seth Rogen. Rogen. Seth Rogen. 
Um, he plays a process server, I think in the movie Pineapple Express. And it, it, it's kind of fun where you look at like a day in the life of a process server. And I think it's Pineapple Express, but it's definitely a process server. And it looks like kind of like an adventure. And I love that he listens to talk radio all day long. So I always pictured it kind of a fun situation. You listen to radio all day long. You don't know where you're going and you're serving process. I always thought that would be kind of fun. My friend Mario DeRay always said that if I didn't make it in radio, maybe I could be a milkman, which uh, is interesting and it's something I've always considered. But I always thought maybe process server would be more up my alley. And I think you can make a good... You know, a good living in that. All right, 800-848-9222. We'll take a couple of calls before we spin the wheel again. And then uh, I believe we're going to talk to Brian Kilmeade. You know, now I'm realizing every day, every week that Brian Kilmeade is on the show, usually I'll send him an S- I send him an SMS text message the day before saying, Hey, Brian, hope all's well. You know, just want to make sure we're still good for our weekly hit tomorrow. And 90% of the time he'll say, yep, good to go. Now, occasionally he'll say, as he did last week, hey, can we actually do it Friday this week? Now, I'm just realizing now, he did not respond to my text yesterday. Now, I'm imagining that's because he was taping the Greg Gutfeld show at the time, but I hope he's still available. Otherwise, we'll uh, we'll figure out something else fun to do. 800-848-9222. Patrick is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Patrick. Morning, Frank. Always nice to talk to you, man. Thank hey, you. it was about 20 years ago or so. Um, a friend of mine didn't have the cojones to, uh, you know, serve, paper, serve papers on someone. So, you know, I said, okay, you know, you can't do it. I said, I'll do it for you. So I went up to the door and knocked. I was very polite. And uh, it was uh, well, not not a pleasant experience, but uh, the guy got his paper i mean you got served you know it's like sorry pal you've been trying to dodge it but now you gotta own up to it you know yeah i've never understood and thanks patrick i never really understood why people go out of their way to avoid service i you know one of the things i guess maybe it's it differs in different jurisdictions but in new york i believe you can't if you're a plaintiff in a lawsuit you can't serve process yourself someone else has to do it and I remember I was suing, this is about uh, five years ago, I was suing the attorney, The uh, no, she was the public advocate at that point, Letitia James. I was suing her, and I had to serve her, but I couldn't serve her physically. So I was producing another radio show at the time at another radio station, and I brought our intern, Joe, great guy Joe, I brought him with me to City Hall. And I said, that's that's Letitia James. As soon as she finishes this press conference, you've got to walk over to her, hand her these papers, and say you've been served. And I got to tell you, she was incredibly professional. It was clear the only thing, she wasn't trying to avoid service at all. She was just trying to avoid making a scene. So she does her press conference. I, I tell Joe, hey, go over to her, hand her those papers, say you've been served. And she... Takes the papers. She says, thank you very much. And she walks away. That was it. No drama. No running away. I, I just, I never understood why people try to avoid service. I mean, it's not going to help you avoid the lawsuit because if the judge sees you're trying to avoid service, they'll they'll make it so that you have, uh, you know, whatever they call it, nail and mail service. So uh, 800-848-9222. Lou 
is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, good morning. Uh, I was served divorce papers uh, at a backyard barbecue with friends and coworkers, and it kind of put a damper on the party. Mm, I I can imagine. I can imagine. Now, at the time that you were going through this divorce, um, were you and your wife, obviously you were not warm, uh, but were you cordial with one another? Uh, For the beginning, and then it turned sour. Her lawyer, you know, was uh, going for the jugular, you know. We we started amicably. I uh, we agreed on splitting property and finances and savings account, and then it turned nasty. And you know, twenty years later, I still speak to her once in a while. We've made amends. Oh, good. Well, I'm happy to hear that. But um, w- were you expecting to be served with divorce papers? Not in that instance, but in general, were you expecting? In general, yes, I knew they were coming. So, wh- uh, but wh- I just did not expected at that time. And I don't think she did either. I mean, it was just circumstance that I was having a backyard barbecue. I don't blame her for that. Yeah. Well, so I'm wondering if it was the same kind of thing that Jason Sudeikis is saying that he did. I think that's a little bit different. That's a public stage. I think he did it to humiliate her or I don't think that's a proper way. Well, so in your case and in his case, why is it humiliating, though? I, I know I've, maybe you don't want everybody knowing your business, but you, you are expecting to get these 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 papers. She's expecting to get them. Why is it? A, yeah, but a, I think on stage is a little bit different than a backyard barbecue, don't you? Yeah, I mean, y- yes and no. I mean, it is in that it's much there more visible. There's no other place that he could serve her? Yeah, well, that's fair. That's what she's saying, essentially. I, I just, um, you know... People go through litigation, right? I mean, unless you're being – if you're being sued for something like um, child support, right, and that you're being accused of being a deadbeat dad, and they chase you down, and they say, hey, uh, Frank Morano, you know, we've got this – we're accusing you of not having paid child support for this this child that you sired 20 years ago. Uh, here, here, you're a real bum. Here you go. That's one thing. But – I mean, nobody knows necessarily your business, whether it's that John Lennon was served on the radio, right? I don't think that did anything to diminish the esteem that people held John Lennon in, in that clip that I played you. I mean, again, I'm sure now that I'm saying it's not that big of a deal, I'm going to be served in a public way and I'll find it humiliating. But I actually don't think there's anything wrong with this. I don't think there's, I mean, that's where the person is. That's what the service calls for, right? I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. 800-848-9222. Maybe, maybe I'm numb because I've been served with so many political lawsuits at the time. I, I always thought it was kind of cool, actually. These guys have to adjust their schedule to you. I was producing a morning show, so that means I would leave my house um, at around two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, right? It's dark. It's dark. And I remember I'm leaving my house one day and a fellow walks over to me at a quarter to three in the morning and hands me some papers as I'm leaving the house. And he says, here, you've been served. And I'm thinking is this guy had to wait out here in the middle of the night just to adjust himself to my schedule. I thought that was kind of cool. 800-848-9222. John is in Suffolk County. Hello, John. Hey, Frank, how you doing? <laughs> Neil is in Staten Island. Hello, Neil. 
I got to tell you, Frank, uh, when I got served for divorce, I was standing outside talking to my neighbor, and a guy pulls up with a Volkswagen Beetle. He comes out. He had an envelope in his hand. I knew I was going to be served. Uh, I just knew it. He's walking up to me, hands me the papers. But the worst part was it was on Yom Kippur. And <laughs> the holiest day of the year, we're both Jewish, me and my wife, and she hasn't been served on Yom Kippur from a guy in a Volkswagen Beetle. It, it, it was just unbelievable, just unbelievable. I'll never forgive her for that one. Well, okay, well, I can understand. But though you and your ex-wife have a great relationship now, though, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. well, so clearly you did forgive her, or at least you're willing to look past it, I guess. Well, I would never forgive her for the way she served me. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I thought it was disgraceful. Did you ever find good. out, and now, okay, that's that's pretty that's pretty bad, I, I'll admit that. Did you ever find that out if that was her direction to serve you on Yom Kippur, or if that was what the process server did on their own? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I never I never really asked her. Uh, I just assumed that, uh, that well, her lawyer does it, not her personally. I'm assuming her lawyer did it. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. 800-848-9222. All right. Now, yesterday, um, we're, we're hoping to talk with Brian Kilmeade in a little while. Yesterday, we had the $1,000 minute as we did each and every, as we do each and every morning at uh, 4.30. And a fella called in, and the answer, the question was, who played Spock on Star Trek? And his response was, Nimoy. But he said, Robert Nimoy. Now, of course, it was not Robert Nimoy. It was Leonard Nimoy. So I felt bad. The guy realized, the guy knew the answer, but he answered Robert Nimoy. So I felt bad, and uh, I said, let's invite him to play tomorrow. Because had he just said Nimoy, we would have given it to him. But he said Robert Nimoy. And he, he was kicking himself. So I said, all right, well, why don't we give him an opportunity to play tomorrow? So we invited him on uh, today. I asked uh, Kenneth to uh, to get his information. And, uh, Kenneth, you broke the news to me earlier that you have lost his number, right? Unfortunately, yeah. Now, w- why not do the simple thing and just put it in your mobile phone? Which is what I was going to do, but then I just got jumbled up with finishing the podcast and all that. I should have done it as soon as I wrote it down. Mm. 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 Um, all right. Well, so what we're going to do, who was it, Eric and Monroe? All right, so we're going to yeah. ask Eric and Monroe, if you're listening, call back, and uh, we will play the $1,000 Minute. And if Eric and Monroe is not there, then we'll give somebody else an opportunity to call in. Uh, but we're going to give Eric first dibs. We got him. Okay, good. See, Eric is more attuned to this than than Kenneth is. Now, Kenneth, I did ask you to also reach out to Robert Nimoy, who we who lives in Massachusetts, which is where the Nimoy of Leonard Nimoy fame hails from have you reached out to robert nimoy yes i have no response yet no response yet okay all right well we're hoping to hoping to do that all right when we come back we'll play the thousand dollar minute we'll give eric an opportunity we'll see if he knows uh leonard nimoy's real name or william shatner's first name or anything else and then uh we'll talk to brian kilmeade hopefully 800-848-9222 this is the other side of midnight straight ahead the other side of midnight with frank morano It's the 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano, we are moments away uh, from uh, talking with Brian Kilmeade, uh, the, who you nationally syndicated radio talk show host, one of the most listened to talk show hosts in the country, and uh, the hardest working media figure that there is. He was doing Gutfeld last night. I mean, this guy doesn't stop, doesn't stop. You know, the, the migrant workers that are working 16, 17 hours a day that you can pick up to do construction and all sorts of things like that. They actually, when Brian Kilmeade walks by or drives by, they point at Brian Kilmeade and say, boy, that guy works too much. I don't know how he does it. The migrant workers. It's true. All right. uh, Without further ado, it's time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you very much uh, for a return engagement. It's a very special edition of this program. Let's welcome back Eric Van Monroe. Hello, Eric. Hello. Thank you very much for uh, the second. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think when in doubt, be general. Give just a last name. Don't get too specific, okay? Sure, sure. Okay, all right. Um, you ready to go, right? Yep. All right. What is William Shatner's first name? William. What Today Show weatherman was famous for wishing elderly citizens a happy birthday? Willard Scott. Who won the congressional primary between Gerald Nadler and Carolyn Maloney this week? Oh, my gosh. You got me. There's two candidates I just named. Just pick one. Just guess. Okay. What holiday is Jewish New Year? Oh, my gosh. Rosh Hashanah. What are the colors of the Ukrainian flag? Oh, my gosh. Blue, uh, Blue and yellow. What is my son's middle name? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to say William. What British prince is the Duke of Cambridge? You want to guess? What? what? Sorry? Excuse me? Uh, what was the well, question? We're, we're out of time. We're out of time. All right. Um, you made it up to you. Got que- you got six questions right, although it was pretty ugly getting there, Eric. I'm going to put you on oh, hold. Sorry. I'm going to put you on hold um, and give Kenneth your information. Make sure he writes it down and emails it to himself because he doesn't have a great track record of, of remembering your number. So you got six questions right, 
And uh, well, well done. I mean, it, it was it was tough going there for a while. All right, uh, somebody that uh, that who, whose trivia chops are absolutely unparalleled is Brian Kilmeade, uh, anchor of Fox and Friends, New York Times bestselling author. He hosts more shows than I can list in the course of a four-hour program, and he's of course heard on WABC every day from ten a.m. to noon. Brian, it's great to talk with you again. How are you? Uh, Frank, thanks for letting me join your uh, your successful train here. I would say I did not know your son's middle name. Well, see, I gave it. If he listens, I gave it as a, a few a few hints throughout the program. So, so I, I will reflect that that you're, you you okay. listen later in the show. That's why you uh, didn't know. So. Um, okay. But that's okay. Hey, uh, so great job on Gutfeld last night. Thank you. Um, now, when you do, clearly, when you do Fox and Friends, you guys have a good time, but there's a lot of hard news. It's a lot of serious stuff that you guys cover. But then you do Gutfeld. It's a much more lighthearted exchange. Do you find it a challenge to, to go from serious to pretty, I don't want to call it silly, but a lot lighter presentation of the news within the same day? No, I mean, uh, the fact that I, I, I get a green light uh, to do it, like when you do that show, it's under the offices of Fox News. Now, mm. if someone just said, hey, Brian, go across the street and uh, there's a comedy show, uh, you're allowed to do it. Then I, I got to regulate myself because I'm out of the Fox. Like, I know if I'm on Fox, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not live. So I, I really have no no problem with that, and a lot of that stuff, you know, you collaborate during the day. I've only I've, he's only been out, he's only he's been on less than a year. Shows a runaway success. This is his first week. He's actually out, so he'll miss a day here and there. So to fill in and everything, you, it's almost like you walk over. You have a gotcha. brand new staff. You sit around. You give ideas. Next thing you know, you're you're uh, rehearsing at six. You're you're on at six thirty, and you're done. So it's a it's a brand new field, but the fact that it's at Fox and it's okay it gives me freedom Neat. to act yourself. No, that's uh, that's. Are you doing Gutfeld uh, at all? Any any days the rest of the week? No, they cannot afford me. <laughs> uh, Dana Perino, and then Pete Hegseth on Friday. Uh, cool. Hey, what was that lapel pin that you were wearing? It was it was an interesting looking lapel pin, but I couldn't make it out. Oh, it's. Uh, uh, American flag and an NYPD shield. Oh, that's neat. That's uh, that's great. Um, crime, not surprisingly, is the big issue in cities all across America, including New York. And um, a lot of folks thought that that coupled with inflation would be one of the many things that uh, leads to a red wave in the midterm elections this year. This election in upstate New York, this special election where uh, Marcus Molinaro lost to Pat Ryan, folks are saying that shows that maybe the swing voters are a lot more worked up about the abortion issue than inflation, crime and a bunch of these other things. Uh, do you think that that congressional election shows that maybe this red wave is not going to be as big a tsunami as people were expecting? I mean, people are saying that uh, because of uh, Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision. And they say uh, when it comes to these purple states, you know, not the Oklahomas uh, of the world, not the Nebraskas, but perhaps not the Texas, uh, although you have some diverse cities there, that people are saying, well, you know, I'm just not comfortable with going to zero weeks of abortion, like making it illegal, some – uh, uh, proposing not even if it's the health of the mother. And that seems to be putting it somewhat in play. But in terms of just flat-out performance, the taxes, uh, the inflation, the Defense Department, the Afghanistan, um, uh, you know, what we're, uh, you know, this now the student loan forgiveness. Mm. I mean, those things and the school boards, 
what's happening with education, what's happening with pronouns, what's happening with your your first grader being taught you don't have you can pick a gender. All that stuff will will I think play a more dominant role than the general media is talking about. But it is something that, I mean I've seen Republicans say, listen, we're getting a little concerned. And now Nancy Pelosi seems to have a bounce in her step, although I think she's gone anyway. I don't, I don't think the House in jeopardy is the margin of victory, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's still going to be a problem because Republicans are pretty much on the same page in terms of legislation. But the House is going to come into individual fights. But notice, Dr. Oz on the offense again. Fetterman's a terrible candidate coming off a stroke and clearly not recovered. Herschel Walker within the margin of error. Uh, they are covering a 45-minute speech, finding one sentence they don't like and making him seem like he's out of touch and not smart. It is just the opposite. Uh, I think that what Dem- Republicans got to do is just make sure that, re- that re- Democrats define themselves. I mean, why are we even looking in Pennsylvania at Fetterman, who's against fracking? I mean, how do you possibly try to expect to win and be against fracking? Joe Biden lied and said, I'm not against fracking. But you know he was against fracking, and there's been, uh, there's been almost no new permits given, and there's no pipeline between Boston and Massachusetts. It's a joke. They're either by natural gas from Venezuela, perhaps. I'm not sure. So uh, I think that the Republicans don't feel as confident. But keep in mind, Frank, you and I are, are on the crazy side. We don't take a day off from <laughs> this. But most people are not zoned in until after Labor Day. Right. Right. Uh, now, that's certainly true. Hey, one of the Senate races which uh, is more competitive than I expected it to be is this race in uh, in Florida, where, according to some polls, Val Demings is actually leading Senator Marco Rubio. Um, we'll see what happens there. But one of the problems that I think the Democrats have had in some of these key races is the same problem that a lot of the re- Republicans have had in some of these competitive seats, which is the kind of candidates that are winning primaries. A lot of folks say that if uh, Republicans had picked a stronger candidate for a uh, number of seats that are in, for statewide office this year, they'd be better positioned to win in states like Pennsylvania and uh, and elsewhere. In Florida, it seems like the Democrats, for all the movement that there is towards progressivism and Democratic Socialists of America and the far left, it seems like they ended up picking fairly moderate candidates. With Val Demings, at least her resume suggests that she takes law enforcement seriously because she's a former police chief. And in the governor's race there, they actually nominated a a former Republican governor, Charlie Crist. How do you see Florida playing out this year in terms of both the gubernatorial election and the U.S. Senate race? Well, look, uh, we have a lot of stations in Florida. I think I have 12. And uh, Marco Rubio is going to be on early next week. He was on television with us this week. I talked to him in the break. He goes, it's going to be a decent race. But he goes, he's got 57 uh, sheriff's departments uh, of 61 who have endorsed him. And she's the law, uh, law enforcement candidate. He says her record's left wing. Uh, Marco Rubio is extremely popular in that state. You know, listen, we know what you know, Trump beat him in the state. And people are like, well, he's not as popular. And he was the whiz kid. He's very popular. He's just not more popular than Donald Trump. And the thing is, the guy actually shows up and works for a living. So with Trump... And I've talked to him offline, too, and I said, what do you think? You know, I know you and Trump didn't get along. He was about a year and a half in. He said, Brian, he goes, he basically gave me, you know, Central and South America. I'm his number one top advisor on this. So what he knows in foreign policy, when he knows of the threats in China, what he feels as though when he knows with immigration, because he lives it as a Cuban, uh, his dad came over here from Cuba as a refugee, 
I, I think is, and you know what, how popular, uh, you know what, Little Havana means to Miami, not only the state. They are a power source, and they love Marco Rubio. So I think it's a five-point win for Rubio, and that, uh, and that. It, uh, the poll they told me is an email poll, like the same email poll that had Lee Zeldin trailing by 24 points. Throw them out when you, when every all our listeners are listening right now. When you see a poll that was done by email, just toss it out because it's no one can do an effective poll these days because they can't catch up with us. We're not on hard lines anymore. And then the cell phones and the prefix, you don't even know what, where. I, if, I'm, if I move to Florida tomorrow, I'm taking. Um, Five one six with me, so everyone has is clueless about where people are located these days. So the polls are really less valid as we move for, further and further into the cellular age than ever. I do wonder the value of any of these polls these days. I mean, I, I think uh, not only the Trump election, but even internationally, issues like Brexit and a bunch of other issues. Uh, we've seen the polling not accurately reflect how people vote, and yet uh, those of us in the press, we still report on these polls as if they're as if they're breaking news. And I, I think we've got to sort of get out of that habit of uh, giving all this weight to uh, to poll numbers. Hey, uh, where are you coming down? Yeah, Frank, can I, can please, I also yeah, add please. one thing to that? Isn't that, don't you think, why people doubt the election results oh, all the time? 100 percent. 100 percent. Absolutely. Hey, uh, I, I know th- that it's sad on the one hand, but it's funny on the other. How are you analyzing uh, each person's handling of this Eric Adams versus Greg Abbott feud over the migrants? It doesn't appear that the buses that are coming from Texas to New York are going to be stopping anytime soon. And it doesn't appear that the war of, uh, of words between these two leaders is going to be start- stopping anytime soon. The problem is New York doesn't have a leg to stand on. Uh, a sanctuary city here in New York City. You come, you can stay. We welcome all immigrants. Well, guess what? Go to the Port Authority and we got some brand new ones. As they are now greeted with a big handshake. They don't look like refugees, man. None of them uh, look like they're starving, put it that way. Uh, also, single men. Uh, you can't get a job in your country as a single man, really. You're supposed to be turned around at the border for the most part, uh, except, I think, for unless you're Mexican. So everybody else should be turned around. Uh, we understand today, I'll give you this information, four more buses coming to New York City today uh, between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. And they're getting more and more packed because the illegals are saying, Texas, small-town Texas, not nearly as great as big-time New York City. And they're being dumped here. So guess what? We're going to clear out floors on great hotels, and we're going to put them right there. And eventually, you'll be renting a hotel like that or your loved ones, and we've got to wonder what those rooms are going to be like. Maybe they can order room service as well. So if Democrats don't understand that this matters, that is going to think they're going to continue to lose the Hispanic vote, number one, because the American and Hispanic community are not happy about it. And number two, this is going to affect everybody. So those liberal parents going to school and going, uh, how was school today? Good. Uh, our class of 15 is now 28. Mm. And uh, those 14 people don't speak English. So I just sit in class, uh, mom and dad, and I don't really get much attention because we're doing translations all day long as we teach the fourth grader how to read. So everyone's going to be affected by this. Yeah, I mean, uh, if this uh, continues unabated, uh, we might have to learn Spanish just to uh, keep up with where the market is going in the in the ra- the radio market's going here in New York. But uh, I, I, on the one hand, you know, I try to have some fun with this stuff. But on the other, 
you wonder how long this can continue, and it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. I mean, New York does have a finite amount of school seats, a finite amount of social services, and a finite amount of $400 a night hotel rooms. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And by the way, the hotel's got to start standing for something. Look, if you're a Hilton, if you're uh, any of these hotels, just make a stand. Listen, I, I know things have been tough, but can you possibly just stand up and go, I'm not taking money from the city uh, to house illegals. I, and you know, even if you use inflated dollars, I'm here to service uh, tourists and, and New Yorkers. I'm not here to service an illegal immigrant shelter. I mean, that's not why you go to a hotel. You're supposed to come here and feed into our system. There's a shelter for that. By the way, we're all paying for all this. And I feel bad for the people of Texas, even though they have no choice. They're paying for their own wall. They're paying for these buses. They're paying for the transportation. They're paying for the food for a 30- to 40-hour ride. Uh, And they're paying for the gas. And the bus driver's got to come all the way back again. So this is because the federal government's not doing their job. And it, I find it criminal that Democrats aren't even speaking up and saying, listen, I might be a Democrat, but this is absolutely out of control. I can't be in a country that's four million people in illegally. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly wild. Hey, uh, you tweeted something uh, earlier yesterday um, in context of this new announcement from President Biden on the student loan forgiveness from uh, it was an article in The Daily Caller in which they excerpted a portion of Speaker Nancy Pelosi's remarks about the president's ability to do loan forgiveness. This is what uh, Speaker Pelosi said at the time. People think that the president of the United States, is this more on the subject than you ever want to know? Will you let me know? People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would has to be an act of Congress. And then, uh, lo and behold, yesterday, President Biden comes out and says, My campaign for president, I made a commitment. I made a commitment that would provide student debt relief. And I'm honoring that commitment today. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. Do you see there being litigation over this because of the statements that Pelosi made saying that this is really Congress's thing? Or uh, do you see the uh, political benefit to the uh, to the Democrats being so significant that uh, there's going to be very little contention over this? I think there's a lot of tension. I think that somebody's got to bring this forward, and I don't think it should be the Republican Party, uh, but I just think someone's got to challenge this. The 36-year-old listening to us right now that just paid off their student loan, when they get married to a couple, uh, goes ahead and let one of the part of their budget is their student loan, but they put their money together and say, listen, I have an obligation. I'm going to pay it off. Well, excuse me? Uh, the president's got a press conference. Uh, okay, put the sound up. Okay, we're going to forgive $10,000, and if you're eligible for Pell Grant, which means you're really financially strapped, that means you can be up to 20000 So how is that fair to the 50-year-old? How is that fair to the, to the electrician that never went to college because right. they want to go to a trade school or any construction worker or plumber listening right now? Really? Uh, money's coming out of my budget? Uh, coming out of my uh, my tax dollars instead of I don't know and anything else that I'm um, that I'm from roads and bridges, uh, in order to allow people who chose a college that they knew would put them uh, cause them to take out a student loan. Now I got to worry about that. I think there are more people offended by this than benefited by this. And the one thing I've been told, 
the underappreciated thing that's got to be reined in is demanding the interest rates. Do you know the the prime rate is about five now? Mm -hmm. Do you know that some of these student loans are at 10? I mean, that to me, if he says, I am going to demand that you keep the the rate on on interest down to the prime rate, that, that to me is okay. Listen, we're in an inflationary cycle. The numbers are going up. You know, we're getting close to Jimmy Carter era. I'm going to I'm going to cut a, a couple points off interest rate. Good. You're still holding your obligation, and you just understand the thing of the times, and then we can debate that. But that's a nuance compared to forgiveness, which means somebody else pays. I think he's going to have more negative, and there's a reason why he waited 18 months, because they know there's a downside to this. He would have done this right away if it was that easy with that much of a downside. That's where the debate was. Elizabeth Warren and and, um, Senator Bernie Sanders are mad. They wanted everybody's loan forgiven, period. Yeah, it's uh, certainly going to be interesting to see how this uh, this plays out. Very quickly, radio and television, what can folks look forward to seeing from you today? Well, I got uh, on uh, One Nation on Saturday, uh, I, I got uh, Jared Kushner, so he's going to be with us. I'm also going to be uh, talking with Jamie Lissau, who you've seen on uh, Gutfeld. The guy uh, lives in the news space uh, on stand-up, uh, so he's going to be he's going to be with us as well. We're working on a few things, including Thomas Jefferson's house. Do you know uh, Thomas Jefferson in 1819 founded the University of Virginia? Do you know these idiotic students want to get him his name off everything in the University of Virginia, even take down the buildings he designed? Uh, that is going to be debated uh, on – we'll talk about forgetting about our past and looking to our future. In terms of today, Kevin Brady's going to be with us, make sense of the student loan from the Republican perspective. It won't be. Uh, Mark Thiessen on the results from the primaries as we close out the primary season. Uh, Rich Lowry, David Avella uh, from the uh, GOP network, uh, and Charlie Hurt. So those are the things we're going to be talking about. And, of course, we'll, we'll lead with Stuart. Uh, we're going to lead with the uh, loan forgiveness. Cool. And uh, I trust you, speaking of uh, having college tuition to pay for, I trust you had a good trip to New Orleans? Uh, yeah. Uh, that was uh, interesting. And then for looking up, putting on television, saying, look out for carjacking. <laughs> it's now the number one, sorry, Newark, the number one carjacking city. So we're all kind of worried about that uh, because crime is out of control. And the second biggest story in New Orleans is nobody wants to be a cop. So I'm thinking to myself, did supporting this, was this a good idea? Ugh, well, it's uh, it's certainly going to be uh, an adventure. All right, uh, Brian, uh, thank you as always. We'll watch you on Fox and Friends. We'll be listening to you on radio. Thank you. Go get him, Frank. Listen a- to you too. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Yeah, it is the other side of midnight. And we will wrap up this program as we do each and every program uh, by giving you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. There's currently one open line, so you can jump on in if you'd like to do so. 800-848-9222. It's time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Joan is in New Jersey. Best rock guitarist who ever lived was Gary Moore. Listen to his covers of Red House. And Messiah will come again. Janine in Westchester. Executive Order 14067, Section 4. Biden signed this on March 9th. Supposedly, he thinks he has the power to take away all our cash and give us digital coins. And, of course, the government will control that. Roger in Massachusetts. Yeah, I think Greg Abbott has made his point uh, with New York. I think he should move on to uh, other cities. Sending buses to other cities now all around the country. Thank you. David in the Bronx. Yeah, to help people who didn't go to college, they should cancel home loans, auto loans, and my bar tab. (laughs) Joe in Park Chester. You know, uh, all respect to Brian Kilmeade, but, you know, you hear conservatives on the Talking Head uh, radio programs talk about social welfare spending. Most welfare spending is actually corporate. Talk about the military budget, for example. Raytheon, Boeing, and all those other gangsters taking uh, all that taxpayer money. That's where the focus should be. Ryan in Pearl River. Uh, I just walked away from the phone. Folks, if the Republican Party doesn't end legal immigration and stop illegal immigration, deportations, the big welfare state, you can kiss this country goodbye. Joe in Ronkonkoma. Today would have been my dad's 84th birthday. Rest in peace, Dad. We miss you, especially your two grandkids. They love you. Thank you. Uh, that about slams the lid on things for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Ask Frank anything. Come good, armed with good questions tomorrow. Got some other fun stuff that we're going to do tomorrow as well. You want to stay in touch? You can email me, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And you can certainly find me on Twitter at frankmorano. Uh, until tomorrow, Frank Morano. Good day.